This is not the media. This is hell. Hi, hi, it's producer Alex. Uh, This is Hell is on a little vacation for the next two weeks, and we're spending it, radio-wise, on the best of capitalism in 2018. This is part one of a two-part look back at This is Hell interviews under the content tag Capitalism. Uh, There are a lot, but these are some of our favorites from this year. Corey Pine examines work, death, and disruption in the digital economy. Julie Wilson views life within and beyond the neoliberal frame. Nobi Prinz explains how central banks became a global superpower. Pavo Jarvin-Sivu and Terry Vaden explore the near-future economics of a world in capital and climate crisis. Helena Norberg-Hodge looks towards localization worldwide. And Jeff Dorchin imagines a world that can no longer afford itself. This is Hell is Back to Live shows on January uh, 12th. Next week is part two of this best of capitalism year in review. Hope you enjoy hearing about capitalism being bad because we have a lot more of that coming next week and the week after and so on. Okay, here's the show. It's a good one. Disruption is awesome. Everybody's doing it. It's the cool new thing the Silicon Valley kids are doing. So if they're doing it and making money, everybody should. So we can make the whole world even cooler problem is, like all of Silicon Valley, disruption is a dangerous fraud. Here to tell us how, investigative reporter Corey Pine is author of Live, Work, 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 Die, a journey into the savage heart of Silicon Valley. Welcome to This Is Hell, Corey. Hey, thanks for having me, Chuck. Find out more about the book at liveworkworkworkdie.com. I'm really surprised that URL was available. I thought for sure somebody would have taken that before you got to it, Corey. Uh, well, it- if I'd had one extra work or one fewer, then, uh, you know, I was looking at $1,000 for the domain. So I just snapped it right up. You start by uh, quoting 20th century philosopher and sociologist uh, Jacques Ellul, writing in 1954 as the technological society, modern man never asks himself what he will have to pay for his power. This is the question we ought to be asking. Why don't we ever ask what we should have to pay for the power we have acquired? Why... Why do we think power or anything is free of cost, especially when it comes to the cost to the environment and to our happiness? Why don't we consider the potential negative impact of any of our disruptions since industrialization? Uh, well, that's an interesting question that I don't get into that much in the book. My personal uh, guess, and it's nothing more than a guess, would be that because it's because we're just monkeys with less hair and slightly bigger brains and we can now order pizza on a app on our phone uh with a push of a button so um questioning is sort of a higher level activity that's not really encouraged by our <clears throat> our capitalist society uh questioning why you know how do you make money questioning why whether this all makes sense <laughs> to live this way so do you think that we are less capable today of inquiry than we were in the past, possibly due to the technologies that we use? Well, you know, I put, I picked uh, Jacques Ellul for a reason, and he, he's best known uh, for the epigraph, you know, and he, he's best known for two books. Um, one is uh, called Propaganda, uh, The Formation of Men's Attitudes, and another is uh, called The Technological Society, uh, and both very much informed uh, my uh, perspective when I wrote this book, which I, I should point out for your listeners, is 
a much more lively and engaging read than the work of a uh, mid 20th century uh, French uh, f- philosopher. Uh, this this one's a little bit breezier of a read, I, I would just like to say. Uh, anyway, Alul um, pointed out that, uh, you know, one of the um, most powerful aspects of propaganda is its frequency. Um, in other words, you know, the, the content of the message um, isn't necessarily as important as the fact that you're always receiving a message. And um, I would say that our, our digital uh, milieu uh, does make us less capable of inquiry because we're constantly distracted. You know, it's like Alul it, it, is complaining back in the 60s about uh, how, how difficult it was to keep up with all these newspaper headlines. Every day there was just more headlines, and it was, uh, it was bewildering. And then you added radio on top of that, and oh my God, how could a, how could a human possibly maintain their sanctity of mind? Uh, and, and look at us today. I mean, it's, I don't even have to finish the sentence, really. <laughs> you don't. Uh, you mentioned how in 2010 you quit your newspaper job and launched your first startup after you called a, or what you called a uh, niche news website. You write that after two years working 12-hour days as publisher, developer, editor, and reporter, the startup had failed. Thus, I had failed. What other explanation could there be? As everyone knew, the Internet was a level playing field, a free and frictionless medium for exchange where the best ideas would inevitably rise to the top. Such was the foundational rhetoric of the Internet, repeated like scripture, questioned only by cranks and cynics. It was also a load of crap, though I didn't yet recognize it as such. But that is how the Internet is supposed to work. So what happens when a foundational technology of the economy does not provide a level playing field, a free, frictionless medium for exchange where the best ideas inevitably rise to the top? What happens when our economy is not only unfair, but not a meritocracy? Well, you get uh, grotesque uh, displays like we've seen uh, recently with with Jeff Bezos uh, surpassing Bill Gates to become the world's richest man, uh, you know, personally worth a hundred billion dollars while his workers, especially warehouse workers, uh, are, are reduced to uh, sub, uh, you know, uh, I would not sub, but pre uh, pre-war uh, conditions in terms of their their labor and their day to day and their their income. I mean, it's it's gilded age stuff. Uh, so when you get a technology that is essentially designed to funnel wealth upward, uh, it will have the uh, incredible effect of funneling wealth upward. Uh, <laughs> I I don't know what's going on in Chicago, but you know I live in Portland, and um, uh, some of the, some of what's happened in San Francisco is certainly happening here. Uh, same as Seattle, and and uh, it's uh, it's becoming a city of uh, empty condo towers and uh, and rickshaw drivers. I mean, it, literally, uh, Silicon Valley is turning us into a society of rickshaw drivers. I, I, I was down in what used to be a thriving uh, old town uh, Chinatown area, and um, now it's like there's these. Uh, beautiful old buildings been taken over by a co-working space, and and nobody seems to come or go except for people that are delivering uh, takeout. So, but you write that the inspirational homilies on Hacker News, a website that you were following, uh, reassured me that I was not alone in your startup's lack of success. Fail fast, fail often, and fail by design. Failing 
fast means failing a lot. And most succinctly, success through failure were headlines in Hacker News. I took it all to heart. I reinterpreted my failure as a character-building experience, but something else was going on with this self-guided tutelage. I was being steadily indoctrinated in a specious ideology. I didn't understand that the only way to turn those skills into a livelihood was to embrace the economy of the digital world where giant corporations wrote the world word uh, rules. As an eager website proprietor and aspiring uh, journopreneur, I was like a stockyard calf who thought he owned the farm. Is that the greatest trick of the Internet, that the Internet convinced the cattle they own the farm, when in reality the farm owns the cattle and is priming them or us for profit? Well, look, uh, the, the, the California libertarians, and, and that's really, you know, if we were going to put a taxonomy on, on the people that... Um, created these technologies and, and set the values that we all sort of operate it with, under when we use these platforms. Um, they were really great at uh, branding themselves essentially as, as rebels. I mean, think about Apple's advertising over the years. I mean, they've always associated themselves with people like John Lennon, you know, Gandhi. Uh, they've been extremely, and they had that, their first breakthrough ad campaign, right? Was that 1984? They were, they were, you know, really taking the fight to Big Brother. I mean, it was it was uh, really uh, ironic that they chose to adopt Orwellian symbolism in that way, uh, considering especially what the whole industry has turned out to be uh, beneath the mask. Uh, I hope that someday those slogans like fail fast, fail harder, those kind of uh, hacker uh, motivational slogans uh, will one day be looked at as as um, you know, uh, like 50s uh, workplace propaganda. I mean, we recognize that stuff for the schmaltz, uh, the uh, patriarchal, condescending schmaltz that it was. And I, I hope that one day we will see those uh, those shibboleths of Silicon Valley in the same light. And I hope that that day comes very soon uh, because, you, you know, this mentality, and I freely admit that it had, it had infected me without my knowing it. Uh, I was a, I did voluntarily... Uh, join the digital economy, unlike many people now who are, um, I, I didn't coin this, but uh, someone put it crowdforced, you know, planning on crowdsourced or, uh, or made involuntary entrepreneurs uh, by, uh, you know, a new way of designing economic relationships that looks a lot like feudalism, but it's, it's spun as, uh, you know, more choice for you. I mean, that have you, Every Uber driver I've ever talked to is is really uh, upset and frustrated, and they're working so hard, and yet uh, something keeps them going, and it's that spark in the back of their head that tells them, uh, "I I own this business. You know, this is I'm going to get ahead by hard work." And uh, they play on very foundational uh, American mythologies to exercise uh, really ruthless economic control over people. Well, you confronted a kind of disruption. I wanted to ask you about that because you describe how in 2012 you went to work for an avant-garde online news service, which sold the work of freelance photographers around the world to news outlets. When you joined as editor-in-chief, they had already signed up 30,000 photographers plus a small uh, full-time staff. The office of this company was in the London branch of its largest investor, the Seattle-based Corbis Corporation that belonged to Bill Gates. Just as you took the job, Corbis bought the company outright. Everyone was 
was told this was great news. The horrible truth emerged when a Corbis manager from New York flew over for a visit. I called him the drone. The drone explained the new reality. There are two things Corbis cares about. The first is making money. The second is innovation and disruption. I think Bill is especially interested in that second piece, innovation and disruption. How do you think he wanted your news service to incorporate innovation and disruption? Because just in case people aren't familiar with the term or the concept of disruption, how do you think that that was going to be applied to a news service? Well, um, yeah, that was, that's sort of a painful uh, uh, period for me. I almost brought uh, speed over it in the book, but it was really part of the inspiration for writing it. Uh, I understood the directive as simply... Um, I think I can say this on the radio, screwing over our uh, clients, that is our photographers, as much as possible. I mean, they were already making uh, very, very little money uh, as freelancers. And, uh, you know, my proposal was, especially for ones who are in dangerous situations like war zones, uh, that we maybe we can help them out with some uh, insurance or uh, uh, day rate, at least, um, which is was at least pretty standard practice. Um, in the, the photo news industry. And, uh, yeah, that was the answer came back. Uh, no, never going to happen. Uh, so innovation and disruption, I took to mean as, um, uh, innovative or creative new ways to, uh, squeeze pennies out of people who only had the uh, pennies to give. Um, and yeah, that, that, that was, that was never, uh, never, uh, in question after that conversation. Uh, and I, I quit not long after that. Do you think um, that in all of its applications, that's what people mean by disruption? Not changing the market in some way that is innovative, that sounds, you know, cutting edge and really interesting, but it's actually disruption is just about squeezing the people at the bottom rung of the totem pole or ladder? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there was uh, the New Yorker some years ago did a whole, uh, back when the buzzword was pretty new, they did the. Uh, uh, the, one of their deep dives into the etymology, and it went back to some Harvard Business School professor. So, you know, that's the kind of person I'm sure had uh, worker empowerment in mind when he was thinking of disruption, uh, uh, being uh, facetious, of course. But I, I think, uh, you know, if there was ever uh, some more uh, uh, genuine uh, meaning in the sense of uh, scientific inquiry and 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 you know, technological uh, uh, inspiration. I, I don't think that, that that's what anyone means uh, in Silicon Valley when they use that phrase. It definitely means uh, how do we how do we basically uh, destroy this market and take over uh, the smoldering wreckage and rebuild it in, in our own uh, uh, image or to our own liking. How much do you think Bill Gates, I know this isn't something you touch on your book, but I'm just curious, how much do you think Bill Gates, you know, lauded philanthropy is really about globalizing disruption and the instability it causes? You know, Gates personally, I think, um, is very typical uh, Silicon Valley billionaire in the sense that uh, his uh, his genius and his um Abilities as a businessman are greatly exaggerated. The common thread with these people is that they are from uh, relatively uh, privileged backgrounds. Um, they attend elite universities and uh, they get lucky. Uh, they get lucky. Uh, I mean, if you look at um, 
you know, the actual technological products that, that they get rich selling. Um, we're talking about uh, software products and hardware products that have uh, decades of government-funded R&D behind them, and only at the final stage uh, before commercialization are, are privatized. Uh, and it's uh, a pretty rarefied set of um, uh, university uh, laboratories and departments uh, where these uh, technologies get uh, disseminated. So, you know, I I would say that um, his reputation is due, uh, well, first and foremost, to his wealth. Uh, his wealth is due primarily to luck and as, as a secondary uh, uh, trait or attribute, I would say uh, it would be his his sort of ruthlessness uh, as a manager um, uh, in almost Trump fashion. Uh, you look at how his companies have been managed and, and it's in such a way that pits uh, one manager against another, one department against another, uh, you know, and 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 hoping uh, through some sort of uh, internal uh, uh, sort of Hunger Games <laughs> that the most capable team emerges. It's not a very uh, hospitable or humane place to work. So uh, I, I'm a little baffled by the the philanthropic reputation. Uh, originally from Washington State, so you know, growing up, he was this uh, distant. Uh, uh, almost demigod type figure, and um, that's really the cultural place of these oligarchs. I mean, if they were from another country, we would call them oligarchs. Uh, so I, I don't put much, put a lot of stock in the in the philanthropic uh, reputation of these billionaires. But we uh, don't talk about the these innovations being based on. Uh, public funding. We talk about them being created in dorm rooms or in garages. And I have talked to a lot of teenagers, you know, especially like 13 to 16 year old. And I've asked them, what are you going to do for a living? And they say, oh, you know, I'm just going to create some video game or some piece of software or some app and become a billionaire, just like all these other people do. So what do you what's the impact, do you think, of that myth of the garage and the dorm room, and what's the impact of that on people today who are thinking about what their future is going to be? It's incredibly damaging, and in many ways, that's um, that's the main story in the book. Uh, is I, you know, I win. I tried to do the the entrepreneur's uh, uh, heroic arc, and um, found that there were. Uh, Thousands and thousands of other people who'd moved to the Bay Area to, to try to do the same thing, and, and none of them are going to make it. I mean, when you actually look at the at the statistics, and the, and there have been you know uh, well done uh, studies uh, assessing the failure rate for for startups and especially tech startups, and it's in the order of ninety five percent when you look at startups that never really uh, meet their expectations um, in terms of funding, and and in the venture capital world, that's as good as uh, you know, being unprofitable. It doesn't, if you don't hit your targets, it doesn't matter. So, um, none of them are going to make it. And it's incredibly damaging, um, in terms of the sort of, uh, when they enter the working world, what conditions they'll put up with and, and accept as normal. Uh, because, you know, it's got that, again, that mythology, fail fast, fail harder. You've got to work hard, play hard, that kind of nonsense. Um, so, you know, people ruin their bodies and they put incredible amounts of stress on themselves. Uh, it, it, the idea in our culture is, um, and especially this subset of our culture is, uh, if, you know, if you're not succeeding, it's cause you're not, you're not trying hard enough. You're not doing it right. And, and there's no, uh, nobody teaching 
especially like the teenagers you're talking about who might be technically inclined, nobody's teaching them uh, the structural disadvantages they, they are facing. Um, and I would say, you know, for the billionaires who have um, gotten lucky through connections or timing or uh, perhaps uh, unfair uh, competitive practices, which is another common thread of successful tech companies, um, you know, they need that mythology. They need that, uh, you know, garage inventor, uh, dorm room genius mythology in order to make them socially acceptable. Uh, because again, we, uh, as Americans prize, uh, the Horatio Alger story, the rags to riches, the, the heroic lone entrepreneur. Uh, and so the facts must be adjusted to fit the narrative in every case. You point out how in writing your book, you couldn't be both a businessman who was trying to start a uh, startup company and a journalist who was trying to write about starting a startup com company, because as you write, my journalistic mission was inspired by an overwhelming sense of hostility toward the tech industry. After all, it had stolen my livelihood and left me with nothing but uh, memes to eat. It had kidnapped my friends and sent me a email ransom note called Facebook, where everyone insisted that everything was going great, that they were being treated well, that the food was always excellent. But I knew better. Big tech trampled over every enjoyable experience in the world. It wouldn't stop until everything felt like the same damn thing, staring at a screen. My entrepreneurial mission, meanwhile, required me to outwardly embrace what I privately abhorred. It was an impossible situation of my own design, over time, the contradictions wore me down until I lay broken in a fetal ball on a sagging mattress in a decrepit Airbnb surrounded by empty beer bottles and small, sad keepsakes of the life I'd left behind. Is that what you think Silicon Valley and the Silicon Valley way is prepared to do to everybody, to do to all of culture, that we will be left confused and broken by a system that rewards and destroys? I think that, you know, the um, the best case scenario is like, uh, that uh, old Pixar movie Wally, you know where that's the best uh, case scenario. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> no, I mean that's a little grim. I mean you read one of the most grim parts of the whole introduction, uh, and, and you know I, I'm glad that you put that image of me in the in the heads of all your listeners. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean what? Where where is the sort of uh, a uh, vibrant, healthy person that's emerged after, uh, you know, a tour in the trenches of uh, internet culture. I mean, show me this person that has emerged whole and healthy and happier, uh, or at least happier than they were before. And, and you know, then we can talk about, about the upside. Um, I, I, I haven't met this person. Everyone I know who's on uh, social media or uh, even, uh, I don't know, online banking, I mean, has, is just frustrated. <laughs> at a minimum frustrated. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just old enough to remember, uh, before, uh, the cell phone, uh, ubiquitous connection era. And, and there were things I miss, uh, I miss a lot, you know, uh, I miss, uh, serendipity and unplanned days and undistracted moments. And I, I think that, uh, you know, even if you're someone who is managed to maintain in the face of this, uh, gig economy, a, uh, you know, comfortable middle-class lifestyle. I mean, one, I would say, uh, beware, uh, they're coming for you too. And, uh, two, I would say, you know, reflect on, uh, reflect on the things that you used to do and the ways that we used to relate. And, and I think, 
Uh, you know, I don't want to sound like some kind of a, a traditionalist conservative or something. I'm not, but you know, some of those things were better. I think that we really need to get a handle on these companies quickly because there needs to be democratic control over technologies that are are this uh, powerful and have this much of an effect on society. Uh, nobody got to vote on on whether we'd have iPhones everywhere, you know. Uh, but maybe we should. Maybe we should be able to vote on that. So what does it say to you then about the state of U.S. politics or specifically the state of the Democratic Party or even reveal to you historically about the Obama administration when you hear Obama and the like praising the Silicon Valley way? Uh, what you see as a fal- false hope as the future that will save us all. What does that tell you about the state of politics when we think that the Silicon Valley way is going to save us all when you see is it possibly destroying us all? Well, I, you know, the Democratic Party, I would say, is primarily responsible for empowering Silicon Valley, going back to the 90s when Clinton and Gore wrote, uh, basically wrote the laws that regulate the Internet or don't regulate the Internet would be a better way to put it. Uh, all the way through the Obama administration, he was very close um, with uh, Silicon Valley, drew many members of his White House from there. Uh, Google's Eric Schmidt was a uh, frequent White House visitor, and he was even involved in strategy. You know, maybe that's part of the reason that the the Democrats failed to see uh, Trump coming in that wave, uh, because you know they were they were dazzled, Uh, they were dazzled by money. I mean, I guess I'm I I, maybe this says uh, something about the um, the stock I I give to politicians, but I mean I, I don't find it surprising that they were. Uh, co-opted by Silicon Valley. I mean, they had a lot of money. And, you know, Democrats especially are used to, they love California, rich, rich Californians. I mean, it's it's like, you know, they love Hollywood, uh, Silicon Valley. They have this image of a progressive businessman. They talk about conscious capitalism and giving back. And it's, you know, they seem, they seem much nicer than the Wall Street people. Right. But that's, uh, that's just, that's just how they relate. It's a cultural uh, screen. I mean, they're they're really the same uh, under the skin. So I I uh, I, I would say that it <clears throat> it reflects what we already know about our politics, which is that they are completely dominated by money, um, and that you will never see a you will never see a really uh, democratic uh, uh, initiative from the I mean small d democratic initiative from the tech industry, it's simply not in their interest. And uh, I, I would be very wary of, of anything that they were promoting through the Democratic Party or any, any, other, uh, any other political conduit. You talk about going to a startup conference and the way that the tech press reacted to it. You write how a panel of experienced reporters and editors dutifully took the stage and told a room full of founders and investors how to better promote their startups. It should have occurred to them that giving such advice was not the job of a journalist. It was the job of a publicist. Is tech journalism then more like sports journalism? That is, the journalists are far too often cheerleaders who, needing access by necessity, become more fans than reporters. And if that is the case, how does that affect the way in which we view the tech world? I mean, I think comparing them to sports journalists and fans is giving them too much credit. There's actually a quote in the book from a guy who covered uh, Silicon Valley for the Wall Street Journal back in the uh, early 90s. And uh, so he saw, you know, the 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 creation of the beast uh, uh, as the first dot com bubble uh, came up and and he said you know in the in the tech uh, 
back the day was covered, as he put it, by uh, former sports editors who were uh, too far gone into alcoholism to even really uh, hack that anymore. I mean, <laughs> he, 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 he was like, these were the people that used to become business editors, and they would give them the responsibility of covering tech, and it, and you know, they'd basically just run press releases from whatever companies they were covering. Nobody understood what was going on, uh, but they, they were happy to be wined and dined. And, you know, that's basically how it still works. Uh, I, I've covered all kinds of beats in my career as a journalist. I covered politics. You know, I know I've seen how, you know, uh, publicists and press reps treat the press in, uh, in DC, you know, one of the most ruthless places as far as, uh, uh, PR exerting control over journalism and, and browbeating and bullying reporters to get uh, stories shaped a certain way. And I would say that the tech industry is even worse than D.C. I mean, at least in D.C., the reporters feel some sense of shame or like they shouldn't necessarily be uh, giving everything over um, to the spokespeople. But uh, in Silicon Valley and the tech press, there's uh, you've got a, basically a generation of reporters on the street who were trained that there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how it works. Um, and you have to look at the business model of, of many of the tech publications. Um, a lot of them are conference driven, which means that the managers and the, and the business sides of the publications have a, an incentive to be nice to the people they cover because uh, they need to invite them to the conference, which is where they make all the money. So, yeah, I would say that uh, this Look at also look at a company like Theranos. Great example. I mean, how did this company, uh, which uh, has been revealed to be a fraud uh, from at, at its very core, uh, and it didn't take a whole lot of digging to figure that out? How did it become the next big thing that in medicine? I mean, this company was supposed to save us and extend our lifespans and and bring. Uh, you know, treatment to the poor that was previously unavailable to them. And, and uh, all the smartest, uh, powerful people invested in it. I mean, I, I, Kissinger was on the board. I mean, uh, how, how did this happen? It, you know, the glowing profiles in New Yorker. Uh, it, it's because nobody uh, with any real investigative talent uh, had examined the company. It simply, the, that kind of reporting just didn't exist in Silicon Valley. Uh, and it took um, it took years and, and to the point where the company was already uh, tremendously uh, fast growing and, and, and wealthy uh, for a Wall Street Journal reporter who knew what he was doing to take a look and say, wait, this doesn't add up at all. And it all fell apart as soon as he, he scratched it. And, you know, I think uh, if we had more reporters like John Carreyou, uh, you know, looking at these tech companies, um, we learn a lot of very disturbing information very quickly, and and I, I put what I could in my book, but I am I am but one man. So. Uh, there's, some, there's something I got to ask you because I was talking to a few people who work in the tech industry this week about your book, and one of the things that I mentioned was how you describe uh, organized crime makes money off of uh, online advertising. Could you describe that to our audience because I found that really fascinating? Well, it's it's, it's somewhat technical, uh, but you know when you see an ad. Um, on a website, uh, it's important to realize that it's not it's not put there by the um, whatever publication you're looking at. They're not necessarily responsible for the ad. They've carved out a certain, let's say, space 
on their site uh, that is then sold through a broker. Uh, the broker uh, finds uh, d- businesses that an algorithm deems um, appropriate to put in that space. And sometimes there's there's more human intervention in the process, but I'm just trying to describe it in simple terms. Um, well, uh, and also the, the, the companies that would place an ad in that space don't even necessarily know where they're going to be uh, placing a an ad. So let's say it. Let's just say it's whatever the Chicago Tribune. Uh, the, there's not necessarily a salesperson at the Tribune and a ad buyer at a company uh, who ever talk to each other from those two places for an ad to appear on the site. So it's handled by middlemen and algorithms in, in various combinations. Uh, a little bit of black magic in there. Now, uh, the people that are, are paying for the ad aren't, aren't paying necessarily for a certain size of placement like they would in traditional advertising. Uh, they're paying to reach certain people. So how, does the, how do the computers determine that an ad should reach a particular person? And that's where a lot of the fraud happens. Um, and, and there's different levels of it, but you mentioned the organized crime aspect. So uh, one of the ways that uh, money is distributed through the digital ad economy is through impressions and clicks. And impressions would be some computer's guess that a person actually saw the ad. So people have come up with very clever ways to game that. And they game it through a, a term your listeners are probably familiar with uh, as a result of the, uh, uh, you know, the Russia scandal, uh, you, you know, which we could get into or not. I'd be happy either way. Um, uh, bots. So uh, criminals create bots that either click or uh, look at ads in place of a human and uh, thereby uh, divert uh, some of the money (laughs) that should be going, uh, well, to only legitimate uh, uh, impressions when a a real person sees the ad uh, into their own accounts. And it's partly because publishers don't have control. It's partly because uh, ad designer or ad buyers don't really understand what's going on. Uh, but it also thrives because there's so much money uh, going into online advertising and such a, a small uh, relative amount is getting taken uh, by these bots in organized crime networks. But you scale it up and you look globally and you say, okay, well, you know, uh, 10% of tra- transactions on the digital ad market might be fraudulent. Well, I mean, you're talking about uh, a sliver of the corporate ad budgets, but you're still talking about billions of dollars uh, going into, I'm told, organized crime. And, you know, that's what all the security experts say. It's completely um, fathomable that uh, that's the case. Uh, it, it's much more plausible than than, you know, a bunch of teenagers uh, getting together and coming up with a scam in their parents' basements, although I'm sure that's part of it as well. Uh, but nobody has any incentive to crack down on this because uh, the fr- when you when a company does its quarterly financial reports, a fraudulent uh, ad impression is as good for their numbers as a legitimate one. So the only people who are really getting ripped off here are are corporations that are advertising online. And who's going to shed tears over, you know, Procter and Gamble getting some of his ad budget siphoned off? Uh, 
it's it's not, there's not any structural reason for anybody to care about this. But if if you look at it, I mean, every internet company that relies on advertising has its revenues inflated by this fraud problem, which is a multi-billion-dollar problem. This is why I have to get out of disorganized crime and get into organized crime because it seems like there's a lot more profit in it. So if you think it's so fraudulent, if you think the uh, the internet is such a scam, it has it's just filled with rampant fraud then how precarious is our economy? How precarious is the stock market if this is all based on fraud? Yeah, well, I, I'm i concerned about that, uh, not because I'm skeptical of the risk of collapse, uh, but because I, I don't necessarily think that we have an economy that would um, provide a real correction. You know, I mean, if you look at the dot-com bust, what happened there was um, the market said, uh, and I know I'm attributing consciousness to the market, uh, you know, people that put money into the markets eventually said, whoa, wait a minute, these companies, uh, they're not worth what we thought. Uh, we're, we're going to pull our money out and, and reduce their value, basically, uh, to the vanishing point. Uh, but this time, um, you know, look at how things have worked since 2008. When you had a massive fraud that was not only not punished but rewarded by the government with like a trillion, you know, trillion dollar plus bailout, two trillion, I forget what the numbers were. I mean, they're unfathomable. Uh, so we now have a we now have precedent for, uh, you know, massive bailouts uh, of fraudulent enterprises, and I'm not sure that if the underpinnings of the digital economy are shown to be unsound, that that will necessarily result in a market correction. Uh, it takes political will as well. And it takes a sense of um, shame and propriety among our leaders, uh, not just political leaders, but business leaders. And I'm, I'm not sure I see those in evidence. Um, you look around the world and it, it is possible for economies to function on uh, you know, with rampant fraud. I mean, um, I, I end the book. I after doing this uh, reporting and and some of the writing, I wound up in India uh, where my wife was teaching. And um, you, you know, many of the uh, corruption is rampant through that society. Many of the um, you know state enterprises and and largest private enterprises are uh, corrupt and offer degraded products. Uh, but nothing happens. I mean, it's just something that people come to accept over time. So, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily predict a big uh, uh, popping of the bubble like we saw in 2000 uh, with the first wave of big, sketchy Internet companies. I, I think it might just be a situation that uh, uh, rolls along like a big, uh, you know, soggy, muddy snowball uh, all through the summer and then collapses, if it ever collapses, just drowns us in mud and mush. I mean, I, it's it's a miserable situation, but I, I don't see what would provide the correction. I mean, Wall Street, the people who are really pouring money into these um, businesses, I mean, they don't, somebody put it to me like this, because uh, I, I had a friend whose job was to go around and, and invest, basically investigate tech companies for um, uh, a pension investor. 
So like a multi-billion dollar pension fund that would invest money and give money to venture capitalists who would then invest it in tech companies, right? And so he would unfailingly go look at some new technology, some some hot new company, and come back to his bosses and say, well, you know, they're really, this is... this is a load of crap, and um, you know they're really overstating here and there, and and his bosses would nod along, and then they'd invest anyway because it doesn't matter from the perspective of an investor whether the company is offering a legitimate product or service. What matters is that its value goes up, and its value goes up if other people invest in it. The only thing they care about is bailing out at the right time before everybody else selling at the right time. It doesn't really matter if, if they if the products work or if, you know, there's fraud going on or not. People can still make money. We have been speaking with investigative reporter Corey Pine. He is author of Live, Work, 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 Die, A Journey into the Savage Heart of Silicon Valley. You can find out more about the book at liveworkworkworkdie.com. Corey tweets at Corey Pine. That's P-E-I-N. You can learn more about him at coreypine.net. And he also does a podcast called News from Nowhere, which you can find out about, again, at coreypine.net. And we only skimmed the surface of this book. We didn't even talk about the disruption of demonetization in India and how that caused deadly chaos is a perfect example of how bad disruption can be. One last question, though, for you, Corey, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write how we are poked with thousands upon thousands of urgent yet pointless instructions from the ether. Create your account, log in to continue, click yes to agree, ding, you have notifications, could that be your boss? Shouldn't you be working? Why are you reading this? Click, swipe, share, we insist. Anxious? Have some dopamine. Ding, have some more. Boredom was once possible. Idle hands made tremendous things. Today, no one is idle. Everybody's working. Even when they tell themselves they're taking a break, it is said that data is the new oil. But we are the data. The new oil is us. And unlike oil, we are a renewable resource. So what's wrong with us being the new oil? It's renewable, sustainable, not a fossil fuel. Isn't our data being the new fuel of the economy good for the bottom line and good for the environment? Uh, well, these. Uh, let, me, let me take that question in parts. Uh, as far as the environmental issue, I mean, what's people think have this idea of the internet is clean. I mean, it, it runs on electricity. Much of that is coming from fossil fuels and coal. So I dispute that. Also the, the, the key elements in the processors and specifically the lithium ion batteries are not renewable. In fact, they're really hard to get, uh, and it's quite disruptive to, uh, to extract them from the earth, um, and, and messy. And, you know, there's, uh, there's some pretty, pretty poor working conditions for miners in places like the Congo and Upper Burma, uh, where um, you know a lot of these the raw earth materials that go into our gadgets are extracted. Um, and you know, again, with more investigative re- reporting resources around the world, we might uh, all know a little bit more about that. So not necessarily clean as far as whether uh, the ethics or the desirability of us being used and extracted as oil. Um, I suppose in a uh, society where the rewards were shared uh, in a fair manner and uh, the, the, the profits uh, that these companies were generating were, uh, you know, in some ways uh, captured through taxation and distributed 
in a in a way that benefited the wider society. Perhaps you could say, well, better us than you know fossil fuels, but that's not what's happening. Um, and it's not it's an imperfect uh, analogy anyway because you know oil doesn't contain uh, information about the uh, personal, private, um, and even social uh, lives and consciousnesses of of the creatures that uh, produced it. Whereas uh, the data that is being extracted from us by these corporations is incredibly intimate. It tells them. Uh, in many cases, more about us than we are aware of about ourselves. It allows them to create uh, predictive behavioral profiles, uh, which, uh, whether they work well or not, they will be implemented. Um, and so, you know, uh, again, that's what a situation where the best case uh, situation might look like uh, the setup of Terry Gilliam's Brazil, you know, where the uh, the, the predictive uh, Police raid the wrong apartment because you know there were some errors in the data. Uh, I, I think that uh, no, it's it's there's there's nothing there's nothing good about us being turned into the the prime uh, resource uh, for the digital uh, economy. Um, I, it's it's our it's our lives and our experiences that they're turning into profit. I mean, even if you accept that they have some sort of uh, legal right to do that, which I don't think that they should. I was just at a uh, conference where Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon here, who has, uh, I, I would say that I, he has a mixed record when it comes to um, uh, digital uh, issues, um, sometimes sides with the company, sometimes uh, with consumers, uh, but is very knowledgeable, more so than most senators on these subjects. And he said uh, in response to the recent Facebook scandal that, you know, it's time to change the law so that that we own our data as individuals, uh, which would really make it hard for companies like Facebook to even operate. Uh, and maybe that's what should happen. Maybe maybe they shouldn't be allowed to operate like they do. Because um, if you think about the implications of what they have, and, and even what Google has, Google has a record of every search you've ever typed into it. Uh, in, in most cases, it's probably pretty closely associated with a uh, data profile of you uh, that that includes other uh, sources, and uh, as we've learned from the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal, these companies will sell this information to basically anybody. You know, if they'll sell it to Facebook, or excuse me, to Cambridge Analytica, working for God knows who, they'll sell it to anyone. They'll sell it to the worst people in the world. So anything that Facebook knows about you, you can assume that the Russian mafia. You know, uh, that the NSA, that whoever is in your uh, the dark corner of your imagination as as a scary threat, uh, uh, Procter and Gamble, you know, they'll sell it to anybody. So, uh, no, I, I, I don't see a uh, I don't see a a sunny, uh, uh, productive uh, future for us in being turned into the fuel for the profit engine of Silicon Valley. I don't, I don't think it's a good fate for our species, and I think that we should resist it. 
Well, on that somewhat happy note, investigative reporter Corey Pine is author of Live, Work, 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 Die, A Journey into the Savage Heart of Silicon Valley. You can find out more about Corey at CoreyPine.net, where you can also find his News from Nowhere podcast. Thanks so much for being on our show this morning. This is a fascinating book, and if it comes out in a later edition, we'd love to have you back on the show to continue this conversation because it really is a fascinating work. Chuck spoke with Corey Pine in April of this year. Hi, it's producer Alex. We are playing a clip show because we're off for the next two weeks, so we are celebrating capitalism on This Is Hell. Uh, Next up, Julie Wilson from March. Neoliberalism is causing an epidemic of anxiety. It seeps into every part of our lives, forcing us to constantly pit us against each other, seeing everybody as a source of competition and doing everything it can to kill cooperation, leaving us alone to fend for ourselves Yes, it is that bad, but there still may be a way out here to tell us all we need to know about neoliberalism and what we still may be able to do about it. Julie A. Wilson is author of Neoliberalism, which is part of a the key ideas in media and cultural studies series being published by Rutledge. Other titles and topics in the series include cultural policy, reality TV, culture and representation. Welcome to This Is Hell, Julie. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. This is a fascinating, fascinating book. It's a really great, concise, and very direct explanation of neoliberalism, its effects, and what we still may be able to do about it. And we want to thank listener Jessica for suggesting Julie as a guest, and everybody who has heard their suggested guests on our show. Please show your support at www.wnur.org. Uh, Julie, You write within academia, neoliberalism is a controversial term. Scholars continue to debate its usefulness. On one hand, for some, neoliberalism is a buzzword, a catchphrase. It is a term that is so often repeated and invoked that it has lost its meaning. According to these critiques, uh, neoliberalism is presented as a scary monster that is everywhere and nowhere all at once. It has become to figure as shorthand for everything that is evil in our world. And as a result, it ends up teaching us very little about what specifically is wrong, how exactly we got there. And what actually can be done to change course? On the other hand, as you point out, other scholars prefer not to use the term because they argue that it is misleading for them. Neoliberalism is simply an advanced form of liberal capitalism. There's nothing uh, really new or neo here. So why overstate and confuse things with a prefix? Is neoliberalism an appropriate word to use? Isn't neoliberalism simply capitalism or privatization and nothing more or less? What What makes that a useful term for you? Well, so for me, as a professor of media and cultural studies and and working with young people, um, I think neoliberalism is important to kind of hang on to, perhaps, because as I talk about in the introduction that you just read from, um, it gives us a way to kind of map our conjuncture or the kind of complicated interplay of social, political, economic forces that kind of shape and make the world as it is. Um, and I think, I mean, I think we all know we live in a kind of global, complex society. It's cliche. And I think what young people are really wrestling with is is that they know everything's really messed up um, and that there's so much information and so many different kind of explanations out there. Um, but ha- kind of how do you put it all together and kind of tell a coherent story that not just explains things, but that helps them form the kind of intellectual and um, I guess emotional or, or affective capacities they need to build a new world. And so in that sense, um, I'm a fan of, of talking about neoliberalism from a kind of critical perspective with young people, 
I have to say, though, when I wrote my dissertation um, back when I was in graduate school, I don't even think I, I used the word, even though I could have easily, because I just felt like, wow, everyone talks about neoliberalism. You know, I, it wasn't until the context of teaching um, that I really started to think about what it could do for our um, kind of imaginations, I guess, radical imaginations. Is that because younger people have lived through neoliberalism their entire life, so it's a more of a touchstone, and, and maybe they even understand neoliberalism better than older generations? You know, I think as a cultural studies scholar, what we're really interested in is is helping students think about their everyday lives and why they feel the way that they do, um, what are the larger forces that are, are shaping those. And so, you know, as a critical person who believes in and, and kind of got inspired to go into education by critical pedagogy, I was, and who was always, you know, really committed to meeting students where they're at. Um, neoliberalism, like you're saying, really does help to name, define um, what they're they're kind of feeling and what they already know, right? Um, and, it, and it helps them, again, put a story to it um, in ways that perhaps, you know, other, you know, folks that have, you know, lived, you know, through the civil rights movement or other kind of historical moments might not find it as useful. But I think... Um, for young people that, you know, my students right now, you know, barely remember 9-11 at this point, right? And um, they're kind of what they grew up in was post-2008, like the first year of coming into my classes. So um, I think it, it's helpful for, to help them get their their head around this, this con- their conjuncture and at the moment that they're in. So what happens the when... the challenges they're facing, yeah. So what happens when Sorry? we are all in competition with each other and everything, including ourselves. How does that change the way we view ourselves, our neighbors, our family, and our friends and our world? Yeah. So, I mean, I think what was interesting uh, about writing this book and the research I did, which I I have to say was um, totally undertaken with my students. So I, I, they were kind of um, guiding, uh, guiding me and helping me figure out, you know, what what was it that they were really um, wanting to learn and was were helping to see. And I, I think that before I hadn't really understood that, like, competition, we're not just talking about market competition, but this, like, what you're getting at, this sense of competition in everyday life um, that kind of really structures at a deep way how we're oriented to the world, to other people, um, and 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 also to how what are the kind of broader political stories that we that we tell and 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 see our role in them. So, I think what happens for young people is that they um, that they feel even though they might know at a certain level, like I want to have these deep relationships. I I know that the world is is messed up, and I want to you know change it. They still feel in, incredibly disciplined by the ways in which they have to be kind of competing human capital and they have to um, take personal responsibility for their futures. And they have, and you know, a lot of them are taking on significant amounts of debt. So that in and of itself is, is disciplining too. Right. Um, And I think that then this has all kinds of consequences for their everyday lives. Um, They find it incredibly hard to trust other people um, to to work together, they feel, even if they don't want it, they feel like they constantly. And I know you mentioned it earlier in the show, have to be a, a kind of brand and be working on this brand. Um, 
and they feel incredibly like they're failing all the time because, um, you know, if, if it's, you know, your whole life is built around an impossibility, which personal responsibility and this idea that we can self-appreciate our way to success um, is impossible, then, of course, failure is always imminent, if not just there. Um, I think for me, though, too, that what uh, probably the biggest impetus to write the book was to what that kind of sense of competition and, and disconnection from other people and lack of, of a kind of um, trust and a kind of what I talk about in the book is this willingness to kind of take a risk um, that something else might be possible um, is, is how it seeps into our political imaginations as well. So that um, there's so much so many ways that competition has become this kind of deep structure of our politics um, and that it feels like sometimes there's no way to get out of what, um, you know, that kind of sense that there is really, like Margaret Thatcher says, no alternative to capitalism and to kind of meritocracy and, and to market-based um, solutions. And you write how neoliberalism has profoundly transformed the fabric of identity and social life. How does neoliberalism reinvent the belief in individual liberties, property rights, free markets? How does neoliberalism change the liberalism that the U.S. was founded upon? Yeah, I think that that's um, really good and, and I think a really interesting and, and rich question because I do think that one of the things that fascinated me in the writing of the book and kind of delving deeper into neoliberalism was that shift in the very ideologies of individualism. So within liberalism, um, the, the idea or like, you know, earlier forms of liberalism, the idea of the individual was rooted in um, property and, you know, the kind of, kind of abstract individual rights that are prescribed in the Constitution and the um, Declaration of Independence, all those kinds of, of things that um, were founded the state and capitalism and kind of undergird that. Um, within neoliberalism, though, uh, the state's role really shifts from thinking of itself as a kind of um, territory with a population that it is taking care of to a kind of um, promoter of global competition where the, the state isn't really interested in taking care of the population and maximizing um, the wealth of, of, of individuals and nurturing rights. Um, and what ha- and then as a result of, the, of, you know, all these things are connected, but that the kind of theory of individualism within neoliberalism is really not about kind of abstract rights or even having property. It's about that you um, are this human capital that has to compete and must constantly be self-appreciating. So the self is capital that must be appreciated. Um, And I think that is a a pretty profound uh, shift in political philosophy and in our kind of theories about what it means to be an individual. And and obviously that comes from um, neoliberal philosophers like Hayek and, and whatnot. I remember talking to a friend who is a diehard supporter of the Democratic Party about why I was not supporting Al Gore for president back in 2000 when I told my friend I wasn't voting for Al Gore as Gore was part of the uh, neoliberal Democratic Leadership Council wing of the Democratic Party, a wing we have been uh, critical of dating back to the beginning of this show in 1997, I guess, uh, 1996, actually. My friend uh, asked what neoliberalism was. When I told him, he said, that's not 
liberalism, as in the Democratic Party's version of it from the New Deal through the Great Society. In fact, the DLC stopped operating in 2011 as there was no need for it anymore as neoliberalism had become a core belief of nearly all Democrats and within the party. How much has neoliberalism changed not only the Democratic Party, but how much does neoliberalism distinguish the divide between the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party and the Bernie Sanders wing of the party? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's important to remember that, like, you know, our political horizons and kind of hegemonic consensus or whatever is is always shifting a little bit. But for the most part, I would say that the, you know, the Democratic Party has been entirely um, kind of complicit in the rise and the kind of cementing of, of neoliberalism as the kind of hegemonic um, you know, as the new hegemony, I guess. But, um, you know, what Bernie Sanders did, I think, was um, really tap into, I think, you know, young people and everyone that knows that the Democrat Party hasn't really been successful in, in meeting the needs of the vast majority of, of working people. Um, and, you know, he tapped into something, uh, you know, but at this point, it just it was really depressing to watch the Democratic Party, um, you know, really cynically marshal identity politics. I'm talking about Hillary Clinton to undermine a kind of more socialist um, agenda. And I, I, just, I just I still feel like that that is going on at the level of um, the kind of national um, Democratic Party. I think what's happening on the ground, however, in local communities, um, especially, I mean, I live in what a lot of, you know, you might call part of Trump country. It's a post-industrial small community um, in northwestern Pennsylvania. But like on the ground, there is all kinds of different organizing happening. And and so there's, I, I take your question, I think at the level of national politics, like the the Democratic Party's embrace of neoliberalism, I think, is still pretty strong. And we saw that in what happened to the Sanders campaign and the kind of infighting that continues to happen in the um, and to and the kind of pushing out of that wing, even as it still exerts pressure. But on the ground, I think it's a little bit more complicated and that the um, there's all kinds of organizing happening. And, you know, in, in certain places, it might not be happening under the label of the Democratic Party just because of the um, population or the way that um, state elections work and local elections and whatnot. Do you think Hillary lost because she was still trying to defend, was still supporting neoliberalism? Do you think the reason Hillary Clinton lost the election was due to a lack of her campaign's recognition that the country, that neoliberalism is in crisis? Yeah, I talk about that in the conclusion to the book. So I was writing, um, I wrote this, you might be able to tell, but I, you know, I wrote it pretty quickly with students over the course of several months. And it was, we were watching what was happening um, with the Trump campaign, with the, with the Sanders and with Clinton. And um, my sense was, is that, that this was a kind of um, crisis moment that um, the kind of cracks in neoliberalism are incredibly profound and they have been growing um, since 2008 and for, again, for lots of people for way longer than that. Um, And that uh, it was, you know, just the, whether it was a Republican or a Democrat, a kind of centrist neoliberal candidate um, probably wasn't going to 
um, martial, the kind of uh, energy and imagination it requires to move the needle in our ridiculous system. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, my sense is, is that, and that maybe I'm an optimist, that, um, that, you know, Sanders, you know, could have won, that I think Clinton was not a crisis candidate. It was too representative of the status quo that's not working for the vast majority of people. And um, it's not that, I mean, it's unclear. I mean, Trump's all over the place. Um, it's not, you know, I don't, I think people maybe were hoping that some people that voted for Trump were hoping for something other than neoliberalism, which is obviously not what they're getting. But I do think that um, it was a, a, a kind of moment, you know, in history where, you know, as the Democrats should have run someone who was not a neoliberal. <laughs> <laughs> so what impact do you think the sense of perpetual competition that neoliberalism has what impact do you think that can have on the family? Is Do you think there's any contradiction among those who support neoliberalism and life constantly being about being in competition with others and what people may define as family values? Is neoliberalism in, in uh, competition with family values? Because uh, often I find people on the far right who are uh, seem to be for at least the ideas of neoliberalism and people just being on their own and individual and belief in the self-made, self-made myth, that they also believe in family values. And those two things seem to contradict each other to me. Yeah, I think that's a really um, insightful question. Um, I spent a lot of time talking in another book um, to women with young children um, about their everyday lives and kind of with the digital culture and, and all the work that they do um, to try to keep family together, right? Um, you know, I think that what happens is, is that neoliberalism, we don't talk about it very much, but um, neoliberalism advances on the backs of women's labor. Um, so if you're going to roll back um, you know, public support for schools and for all kinds of the, the kind of social infrastructures that we need um, to kind of carry on life. Um, it really relies on the family um, to pick up the slack. And because um, of the gender division of labor that we have and the way that um, caring work is still naturalized um, to women and exploited in various ways, that um, it is you know, women that end up um, kind of stepping in and, and providing the glue to hold society um, together. So neoliberalism is profoundly contradictory, especially for women in a lot of ways, because on the one hand, it's, um, it's you know, it basically says, oh, women, you know, we're in this post-feminist era, women can be a brand and can do whatever they want, and neoliberalism kind of welcomes this, um, you know, diverse, post-feminist world where, you know, women can do anything and you can choose to have a family or not. But on the other hand, it continues to kind of rely on um, their labor. Um, so it's, you know, I think that it does both. On the one hand, if you're a social conservative, that you're speaking about family values, like in, in so many ways, um, that is compatible with neoliberalism and a kind of, well, what I talk about in the book and a more right neoliberal kind of um, milieu and, and kind of sensibility that is, is very much based on a more conservative 
um, or traditional social hierarchies of gender and race and um, nationality and whatnot um, versus a left neoliberalism, which um, still uh, exploits women's labor and relies on it, but um, speaks in much more, I guess, empowering, um, marketized kind of equality rhetoric. If you will, we are speaking with. Does that Ju- answer your question? Yes, it does. We are speaking with Julie A. Wilson. She is author of Neoliberalism, and the uh, earlier book that Julie was just mentioning that she has written was co-authored with uh, Emily Chivers Yoakum, and uh, the title of that book is "Mothering Through Precarity: Women's Work and Digital Media," and that came out one year ago this month. If competition leads to innovation, how does neoliberalism's embrace of competition? undermine our political imagination? Can competition lead to technological innovation while killing social and political imagination? Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's a question of, you know, I I always, so back up for a second. My students always, when we start on this journey, they'll say things like, well, isn't competition good or isn't innovation good, you know? And, you know, my argument about neoliberalism is that you can't make competition and and personal responsibility and all these things a basis for kind of society, Um, that there are just too many things that we need to do together in order for um, the kind of common good, right? Um, And so I think that uh, neoliberalism, the kind of false promises, if you will, of innovation and competition and like, we're going to have this um, we're going to, you know, Hayek talks about the market is the side of truth and the spontaneous order and solutions that to people's needs will genuinely be worked out in the market um, is a kind of huge myth. And it, but it's what allows us and kind of is the rationale for kind of hollowing out public institutions, democratic institutions, as well as our own capacities for participating in those and our own desires to be a part of those. Um, and so, you know, I think that what I want my students to do is, is, I guess, to innovate at the level of political imagination. And, and you know, but in order to do that, they're going to have to get outside of a, a kind of market paradigm, um, which is what I think what neoliberalism and what competition have done is kind of create this sense that the only way to move forward is through the market. Um when markets might very well have a have a, a role to play in a kind of much more egalitarian and just society that works for all, but um, you know, put it crudely, when a society is organized around profits versus people, um, that's when you um, run into um, misery, social misery, inequality, and all the things that neoliberalism um, gives us. And you write neoliberalism incites us to live as self-enclosed individuals, as competition necessarily pits us against our peers and the rest of the world. Is it possible to effectively fight climate change when we talk about the world around us? Is it possible to effectively fight climate change while still embracing neoliberalism? Um, I don't think so. Um, you know, climate change is one of those um, I mean, what's at stake is the planet and everything living on it, and it requires a kind of global um, cooperation. Um, as Naomi Klein has said, you know, solving climate change, addressing it, is not compatible with continued neoliberal capitalism. Um, 
And so, you know, if we can, you know, I think what neoliberalism tells us is as self-enclosed individuals who are looking to self-appreciate within the market, we might have a a role to play in combating climate change by, say, buying green products, right, or expressing um, our views on social media about how wrong climate change is. Um, But that's ultimately not going to do much to um, to 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 actually do something about the problem. Um, it's a market-based um, kind of uh, response, I guess you could say, that we can buy better pro- you know, better products that we can express outrage that gets um, quantified and used to to sell us better messages on social media. But it's not a practice of um, collective governing. And to honestly, to fight climate change, we need, um, you know, a kind of global process of um, cooperation and governance um, that seems um, in- increasingly in- impossible um, to even imagine what that could look like. Which is at odds with the New York Times reporting this week about young Republicans and how they are looking to actually come up with a policy for fighting climate change. But, of course, all of those policies are involved with market solutions. You write, we move through the world with an oppositional consciousness where all things are potential threats to our own individual self. How much does neoliberalism lead to fear? Because here in the States, violent crime has been in precipitous decline, yet the media portrays the nation constantly in fear. So to what degree does neoliberalism and competition cause fear, even paranoia, and fear that's completely unnecessary? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's maybe even more so than fear, which I think is is a, a, a definite byproduct of this. I think at the level of everyday life and just kind of moving through the world, it's more about this sensibility of kind of threat that at any moment things can fall apart. And so, or something can, you know, um, it can be, you know, it could be violent crime, uh, you know, that the media reports on it and whatnot, but could also be something as small as, um, you know, a a car breaking down or or something like that. But we just move through the world that any person or anything happening um, could undo everything that you're kind of trying desperately to hold on to, right? Um, And so everything's to be held suspect, um, to be evaluated in, um, in terms of risk or threat. Um, and I, I think that that's a really, like you said, par- it's, it's paranoid, but it's also like completely debilitating, right? In terms of social life, um, if we're all just kind of moving through, um, looking at every interaction or every potential um, invitation or, or kind of social scenario in terms of that framework of risk management, of potential harm, um, it makes it really difficult to think about um, things like organizing politically with other people, um, to trust other people. Um, And so when I think about oppositional consciousness, and I want to make clear by that, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm drawing from a a feminist um, scholar named Anna Louise Keating there. It's not so much that opposition and political antagonism is the problem, because we know that, like, if we're going to build a, a, a communist, a better world that's, you know, beyond capitalism, we're going to need to fight like hell for it. But I do think it's to say that we need to move out of this um, paradigm of constant fear, threat, and mistrusting of other people 
to a world-building one where we remember that um, there are alternatives, um, that people are social constructions and historical, and that, you know, we, we the world isn't always going to be this way. And it's a question of how we're going to show up and what part we're going to play in, in organizing for a better future. So, um, but I think that that oppositional consciousness is a real stumbling block. It's at a very minute, like kind of everyday life level that prevents us from from kind of being and, and, and desiring to be in common with other people. So uh, how much do you think, because you mentioned, let me read this quote real quick, uh, neoliberalism and its diffusion of competition throughout society make the infrastructures that undergird our lives profoundly unstable while simultaneously diminishing our senses of interdependence and social connections. Now, I understand that you're using in- infrastructure in a, you know, not just a physical term, but also a psychological term, but how much does neoliberalism lead to the crumbling infrastructure that we have, lead to our roads and our schools becoming worse? Absolutely. I mean, I I think that um, that is a huge, um, I mean, neoliberalism is to blame for that. Um, I live in a, a place where you can see that all the time and every day, divestment and the gutting of local government. And it's a huge um a way to organize common ground around, um, right? And it's um, and I also see folks out in the and where I live also organizing actively for what you talk about at those psychological infrastructures as well. So people are working on the ground to um, make housing safer. I mean, we have a huge rental population here. Um, but they're all in, and so they're fighting for that, those kind of physical infrastructures, figuring out how to partner in particular ways to take care of basic um, material, things like roads and, and, and bridges. But they're also organizing to, you know, bring people together across divides, um, whether we're talking about race or socioeconomics or, or, or whatnot, um, cultural, religion, and to kind of experiment with what um, what we could do when we just kind of come together and do things that are free and fun. <laughs> and that's a different kind of an infrastructure. Again, that's working on people's capacities to be together and to want to be together and to not just go through, you know, walk down the street and see someone and think that they're a threat, right? But like, no, we are all, we can be in this place together to do things collectively. How much do you feel those who dismiss neoliberalism as a term or deny it as a concept are also in denial of any common ground we may all occupy and share? And I think that that, I have, um, so I, I could go different directions on that. I do think that I, I get um, tired of academic debates at this point. So um, when I was writing this book, um, I was thinking, like, I'm just going to be polyamorous, right? If someone helps us understand neoliberalism a lot better, whether they like the term or not, right, I still am going to just use them and put it all together in a particular way. Um, I do think when people use neoliberalism or use the idea of um, political economic critique, saying that that is somehow incompatible with um, identity-based movements or something like we see um, and kind of politics these days, like with the Clinton campaign, um, I think that that's profoundly um, destructive. I'm more sympathetic to the people that want to um, disparage neoliberalism, saying that it's 
you know, just we need to fight for communism or socialism and like stop trying to complicate it. Capitalism is the problem, not neoliberalism. Let's just call it by name. I'm more sympathetic to those critiques, but I also think that there's something that we talked about earlier in the interview. There is something new about neoliberalism. And I think that the things that are new about it and what's happened to the state and to privatization of public goods, like that was not classical liberalism. It wasn't even laissez-faire capitalism, right? So these are pretty profound shifts and who we, how we're supposed to think about ourselves as people and what governance is supposed to be. Um, neoliberalism is a-democratic and absolutely hostile to democracy and collective governance of all forms, um, except those through the market. And so I think that it, to the people that are saying, just call it capitalism, capitalism, I'm sympathetic, but if we are going to do that, then let's just be clear that we're talking about the world that people actually inhabit, right? which I think is a neoliberal one. You write that when asked to consider various forms of privilege, many of my white male students get defensive. The idea that they haven't earned their place through their own decisions and hard work, but rather benefited from inherited wealth and opportunity means that they are not good people from the perspective of neoliberalism. To what degree, then, do those who dismiss neoliberalism as a term dismiss it because they have, to some degree, benefited from privilege? So I think what's interesting um, about that is that uh, so my my experience with students is that they don't dismiss neoliberalism when they understand what it means. So those same white male students who get defensive and have trouble speaking about privilege, they're much more able to to think through that and to talk about it when there's a kind of common ground. And I think that's what teaching about neoliberalism can do because when you put these, um, you know, issues of inequality and exploitation and kind of historical legacies of settler colonialism that we're still living with very much, when you take it out of an interpersonal frame, which is what the dominant discourses of, I think, privilege and inclusion discourse and diversity, which are governing discourses of neoliberalism, when you take it out of that and give everyone a kind of common ground, it doesn't mean you're all the same. But when you take it out of that, then, you know, students are much more um, eager and willing and capable of engaging. And they don't, I don't, I teach a lot of, because of the way our um, curriculum is set up, I end up teaching and working with a lot of economic students who are by far the most conservative students on campus. And it's amazing how much um, they are, uh, I used to be kind of scared, but they they engage. And um, I, I think that talking, I mean, that, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I thought, wow, talking about this thing can really allow us to have these conversations where it gets away from that kind of um, competition, self-enclosed individualism, in which certain people clearly have way more privilege and not, you know, a lot to lose, to this place where the students are working together across those differences and are okay with those differences and willing to acknowledge histories and their own positions because they're seeing it within this larger um, frame, I guess, that they all feel um, that they can, that they all understand and share, I guess. How far do you think uh, recognizing that everyone suffers from the same I anxiety brought on by neoliberalism would go toward challenging 
the system that makes us anxious. How far do we, I mean, how much do we have to just realize? We had Jennifer Baumgartner on the show maybe 14 years ago, and she was talking about how we have to constantly remind people how feminism or how uh, labor organizing brought about the things that we have in our life, the benefits that we have in our life to raise feminism and union organizing to a higher level of understanding and, and a greater degree of embracement. So how far would recognizing that everyone suffers from the same anxiety Anxiety go toward challenging the system that makes us anxious. Um, I think that it could. I, th- I mean, I think it's uh, again, it's one of those um, kind of shared, common experiences that has the potential to bring people into relation with one another and to create a kind of shared sense of what's wrong and what kind of world we would want to live in. Um, again, though, the tricky part comes from that that can't erase all the very real differences in histories at the same time, right? And and, and that's a tricky thing. But I do think that um, that anxiety and the kind of, and, you know depression and the, and and also just the how unhealthy we are, right? Um, and how bad everyone feels, whether they um, you know call they have a diagnosis for it or not. Um, I do think that that. Um, is a, a potentially very fertile ground for organizing and for um, seeing connections and for thinking about and having young people think about, well, what would a world, um, if, if my anxiety is not my fault or not coming from me and it's coming from the social world, why is that? And what would a world that was designed to um, do, to produce a different kind of um, you know, feeling of being in it look like? Um, and I have found that to be a very productive conversation to have with um, with young people, for sure. So how much... It kind of, you know, gets their imagination going. Right, right. And how much is the first step toward challenging neoliberalism, the realization that its power over our lives is tenuous? And if it's so tenuous as you write it is, so weak, so insubstantial, then why haven't we unclenched the grip it has on our lives? I mean, I think one, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for that because as tenuous it is, it's, it's also, and what I was, what I'm trying to say is that it's, it's everywhere and we hate it, but it's, um, at the same time, it's because it's everywhere and we hate it that it is tenuous almost. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of ev- evidence to suggest actually that, um, that neoliberalism is, is, I hope, on its last legs. Um, like I said, I think young people are ready for socialism. They were ready for Bernie Sanders. Um, they're open. They're starting to organize more and more. Um, then there's also, again, what's happening on the ground in communities and has been for decades in places where people are, are building um, new economic systems, cooperative, worker co-ops. Um, and so, I mean, it's going to be a process. In terms of Preventing that, I do think that one of the hardest and thorniest and uh, I don't even know what to do about it issues is the increasing mediation of everyday life and the um, rise of social networks um, and the power of algorithms and big data to kind of um, shape the environment that we work in. I think that new communication tools can be great for organizing, and they certainly are, but at the same time, um, 
you know, they they also um, really reinforce neoliberalism and self-enclosed individualism and competition and branding and all those logics, too. And I think, um, I don't know how to, um, I, you know, I'm a media scholar and I study it, so I don't, I, and I'm very, I don't like it when people say, oh, just get off media, stop watching TV and, and whatnot, everything will be okay. But I do think that that is one of the um, biggest challenges because it's so embedded in our everyday lives. And it's those um, digital and media infrastructures are, are, you know, they're neoliberal machines, I guess, <laughs> for the most part. Where do you see what you call the fissures and fault lines where resistance and trans- transformation of neoliberalism are in fact possible because you also write that there is no pure outside to get to or work from. That's just the nature of the neo- neoliberalism's totalizing uh, cultural power. But let's not forget that neoliberalism's totalizing cultural power is also a source of weakness. So how is ne- neoliberalizing uh, neoliberalism's totalizing cultural power also a source of its weakness? And where do you see these fissures and fault lines that we can challenge neoliberalism? So, for example, I mean, um, if you if you privatize everything, right, and you get rid of and like um, destroy the kind of infrastructures that make people's lives um, difficult or make people's lives possible, if you take that away, people are going to have to, out of necessity, right, hopefully, come together and figure things out. And so the, it seems to me that neoliberalism is kind of constantly sowing the seeds of its own demise by the fact that it doesn't take care of the basic infrastructures, whether those are psychological, like our health, right, and our mental health, um, or whether it's, you know, our communities and the kind of basic things like um, that we need to, to live. Um, that, that I think that that's where the fissures and fault lines are and that people you know, that I talk about in the book, this idea of disaffected consent, like people can, or like people acquiesce to neoliberalism, but they're completely disaffected from it, right? They don't like it. Um, they're kind of disciplined into it by debt um, and by um, kind of the norm of competition and the, and the kind of um, social Darwinism that it promotes. But at the same time, that is um, not a, that's a pretty tenuous, like that disaffected consent is a pretty tenuous um, uh, thing to build a society on. And so the, the, the possibility for organizing is tremendous. And I think that because we've never had in a lot of ways more in common than we do right now, um, you know, being able to let go of this self-enclosed individualism could um, unleash a kind of um, broad kind of socialist project. I mean, and again, I think we're already seeing that with the rise of worker cooperatives. I mean, what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi right now with Cooperation Jackson is amazing. And that's just one community. And we see it all over um, the Rust Belt in places that, you know, don't get, they're not the media capital, so they're not getting talked about. Um, but in on the ground, um, people are exploiting those fault lines within neoliberalism. And um, right now, I don't think it's um, we've got the the kind of new story figured out, and it doesn't have a name yet. Um, but I think that's where we're heading. So. Right, and you talk about that the uh, status quo stories and news stories, and so just so people know that we have just skimmed the surface 
of Julie's book. Julie A. Wilson is author of Neoliberalism. She's an associate professor at Allegheny College in the Department of Communications, Arts, and Theater. And as we were saying earlier, she's co-author of a book that came out last year with Emily Shivers Yoakum called Mothering Through Precarity, Women's Work and Digital Media. One last question for you, Julie, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. What you hope to see is that everybody sees that they have a life in common, that we share common lives. But to what degree is there a common good? Isn't what I think is good for me not necessarily what is good for everybody? Is there such thing as a common good? So I'm going to say, I'm not going to take the question on common good exactly, but I am going to say that I think the book argues that what we need is to move from living in competition to living in common. And that requires at both a kind of psychological or affective level, like we have to re um, find ways to spark a desire for, for being with other people and not being these self-enclosed individuals. And that means being with people that might be threatening or different, um, who might not add value seemingly, right, a kind of radical equality. But I think the other part of common is we have to build um, a kind of political and economic system that is based on and premised on the egalitarian production and sharing of wealth, right? Neoliberalism can look very progressive when it, it speaks about diversity and meritocracy, um, but ultimately, you know, if we want to, we want a common society, we need to be thinking about equal outcomes and that we all have um, a part to play in the right to, um, you know, participate in redefining and, and building the world and, and, um, and appropriating the wealth that we can all produce together um, equally. So. Julie, I really appreciate you being on our show. Everybody should check out your book, Neoliberalism, and the entire this whole discussion series that's happening over at Rutledge. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Chuck spoke with Julie Wilson in March of this year. Producer Alex here playing a Best of Capitalism 2018. This is part one. Next week will be part two. And the next interview you're going to listen to now is Nomi Prins from May. There's a new global superpower, and it's not a nation. No, the new global superpower dictating the world economy is the world's leading central banks, including the U.S. Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of Japan. And they got that way by conjuring up money out of thin air. Here to explain who the new superpower is and how they got that way, journalist, speaker, TV, and radio commentator and former Wall Street executive Nomi Prinz is author of Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. Thanks so much for being back on the show, Nomi. Thank you so much, Chuck. Follow Nomi on Twitter at Nomi Prins. Nomi's on Instagram at Instagram.com slash Real Nomi Prins. And you can visit Nomi's website at NomiPrins.com. And before we even start the conversation, I just want to thank you because you've been very kind in suggesting a fantastic guest for our radio show and hooking us up with people. So I just wanted to say I really appreciate all the support that you have shown for our show over the years. Oh, well, thank you very much. And one back at you. I was in Washington this week talking about the book, and a couple of people in the audience mentioned your show. So, 
Are you kidding me? It's all, it's all good. I, no, no, I'm not kidding you. Oh, it happens. Go figure, man. I knew that I could pay yeah. those people for a while. So you you write. <laughs> well done. How, thank you. Uh, you write how in the late 1980s and early 1990s you were working the futures and options desk at now defunct investment bank Lehman Brothers while moving from a master's to PhD coursework in statistics. You explain how you held a purist attitude about analytics, the math behind financial instruments, in contrast with the cocky salesperson mentality of other colleagues pushing financial products. And I want to ask you this question and a few others just to give our listeners some context here. To what degree was the financial collapse that took Lehman Brothers down, among other uh, possible reasons, caused by who you call cocky salespersons? How much of a divide was there between those selling investments and those who were doing the math behind financial instruments that you studied? And, And how much do you think that divide is continuing after 2008, even up to this day? Well, I think even from that time, that divide got smaller and smaller. So the sort of research departments and analytical teams were brought more into the fold of of being sort of the reason or the math behind what was sold. Um, And then the salespeople took that to an nth degree. And then the sort of division heads and CEO and chair people took that to an nth time, like a thousandth degree. And so on up the companies. Um, whether it was Lehman Brothers, it doesn't exist anymore, or Goldman Sachs, which was the last stop I had on my way out of Wall Street. Um, you know, the, these companies are, are increasingly designed to take money out of their clients, the economy, the central banks, wherever it can uh, be taken from, and to utilize it for their own gain and to and to rig markets and, and to rig the system. And more recently, since the financial crisis, that's become worse because they were rewarded um, for all of the activity that caused the financial crisis to the tune of trillions of dollars, ongoing subsidies, and ongoing record profits and record CEO and chair people pay. You explain how Lehman Brothers sent you and the cocky salesperson to China to sell (laughs) some products or at least uh, open accounts. You write, I didn't realize it then, but the product we were trying to sell to the Chinese contained both financial and political underpinnings, as so many do. Do all investment bank products have... Uh, financial and political underpinnings? And what do we miss in understanding finance, global finance, or even the power of these central banks when we don't recognize their relationship with the political? Well, so back back then when I first went to China and a bunch of different places, the, the reason for that was because um, they decided that me and this cocky salesperson should, should be working together in order to sell a uh, product, which at the time um, were treasury bonds. So we were basically selling to the Chinese U.S. Treasury debt um, over the years, the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of China, has amassed more of that debt. Um, and that has become a political tool because um, they have it, so they kind of use it as as a way to sort of leverage their relationship with the United States in terms of, of geopolitics. And the United States is actually upset that they have it uh, and, and, and try and uh, sort of pin China as a currency manipulator, even though China is holding their debt. So there's all these external um, sort of narratives that are going on between countries and, and sort of denigrating countries one to the other. But at the, at the base level, um, they need each other. Um, in, in, in terms of being able to supply each other with money um, in order to buy debt, in particular, this case, the, the Chinese buying the debt for, for years of the United States and so forth. So everything that has to do with money at the high level of these countries, at the central bank level, which is which is the one most connected, even though sometimes it's considered to be independent on paper to governments throughout the world, is about money and politics. So how much do you think the confusion by the public around finances, around world finances, 
is driven by this idea that the major central banks or even the IMF and World Bank are apolitical? Uh, a, a lot of damage because there is a perception, and this is a perception um, you know, on the left and the right in many cases, that somehow the central bank, um, for example, the Federal Reserve in the United States, is, is helping the general economy. And this is how it's been portrayed in the last 10 years. Now, the Fed was created in 1913 to help the banking system because there had been a financial crisis six years prior. Um, and the head kingpins of banking at the time decided that they needed a place a lender of last resort, a parent, um, to be able to borrow money from when they needed it. There was an emergency clause in the act that said if there is an emergency crisis, like we have a world war or you know aliens invade our planet or whatever, um, that we are being able to manufacture, conjure money to give to the financial system to make sure it goes out to the economy, to make sure um, everything keeps running. The reality in the last 10 years has been that this process, this emergency process, has now been going on for 10 years. The Fed has fabricated four and a half trillion dollars of money out of nowhere. Um, it had it had been a higher number, but today it's still four and a half trillion dollars of subsidies, money conjured from nowhere to give to the banking system in order for banks to do things like pay their fines for crimes they committed into the financial crisis, buy their own stock, which elevates their stock and therefore uh, the compensations of their, their CEOs and executives, and not have to because there were no strings attached to that money, there still are none, um, give that same generosity to, to customers or really care about the Main Street economy. So it's dangerous that the narrative um, is that, that central banks somehow help. Um, they, they don't. What is helped by this money um, is the banking system, our major corporations, is the stock market, um, and is the creation of, of a mega debt throughout the world. When you worked at Goldman, you write how one senior manager advised me that if I wanted to get ahead at Goldman, I had to make upper management my my clients, not the external customers. That was a pivotal moment for me, uh, uh, though a steady stream of internal politics at uh, uh, Goldman on Wall Street and in the corporate world at large is a constant presence. To have it so plainly spelled out, stop me cold. Why did that advice stop you cold? And, and, and do you think that that advice, that kind of practice of uh, focusing on uh, upper management rather than the consumer at large, do you think that still persists today, that that is pro- part of the post-2008 problem that we're seeing with finances? It's certainly accelerated since that time, and in particular in the, in the sort of boutique investment banks like Goldman Sachs that have such a strong connection to the government because they produce treasury secretaries that then run effectively the economy and policy decisions that, that benefit the people that they are connected to, that benefit the banking system. That's where they come from. That's who they help, and they get into these positions of extreme power, um, and that's their lean. That's their bend. And so that idea of, of sort of playing to management um, that was plainly spelled out then. I mean, I was trying to do analytics that showed the downside of the things we were doing to customers. I felt it was fair as did some people at the time to say, look, if you buy this product and this negative thing happens, then you will lose money. And to quantify that and show that. But it became um, in the in that part of, of history when Enron was imploding and WorldCom and there are all these corporate scandals going on and banks like Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and Merrill Lynch at the time and so forth were there to provide them out. Um, for for how badly their books were doing into the scandals they were producing and sort of rejiggering 
um, their losses into into gains until it could no longer be done anymore. That's exactly what happened with subprime loans into the subprime crisis, and it's going on today um, with with loans to corporations and the debt that corporations have taken on because money rates have been so cheap in the last decade. So that entire process of sort of playing upward is now and has been. Um, but more so connected into how governments are run. It connects into the Treasury Department um, as part of the administration in Washington, the Ministry of Finance in different countries. Um, And it it has a real impact on rejiggering the economy and the financial system to continually be more and more helpful to those at the top of it, um, extracting policy and money from those anywhere else. You write private banks normalize market manipulation. Central banks made it an art form with no limits. The big banks with their strong personal and legacy connections to the government and the backing of central banks, particularly the Fed in the United States, thrived through economic and geopolitical conflict. So conflict is big business for big banks. How big of a role then do you think banks have in advancing or even promoting conflict? Um, they tend to benefit um, whether there's conflict or not. What happens after conflict, like after a crisis, is that they benefit more because the, the help that they get is disproportional um, to the help that the actual economy can get. So, for example, um, in the wake of the financial crisis, in my book, Collusion goes through um, a series of countries, including the U.S., and, and what happens step by step from when the financial crisis hit through today and how all along the way, these institutions, these central banks that are only supposed to both regulate their banking systems, i.e. keep them in check, um, which they failed miserably in doing, um, and provide them money in an emergency, which is still ongoing, um, have, have fabricated all this money and subsidized them. So they basically not just socialized their losses, not just you know provided them money with which to pay the fines for the crimes they've committed, um, but, but, but it's an ongoing thing. So right now, for example, um, the top Central banks in the world, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, um, have are, are have basically given $21 trillion, the, the size of the whole entire GDP or economic production of the United States, into the banking system. This empowers the banks to go on and continue with the risky practices that had become the financial crisis. And, and just now they're doing it on the back of more money that's been provided them um, in conjunction with having failed so badly and having imploded economies and the financial system so badly. They have been rewarded um, for their bad behavior, not just a little bit, um, but to the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars. We are speaking with Nomi Prince. She is author of a new book called Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. And the reason I'm reintroducing you is I want to remind people that the name of your book is Collusion because this is the part I don't, I don't really understand. Why would central banks collude instead of compete? I, we're always being told that what's best for the market is competition. These are the people at the very top of the market. So why wouldn't they be embracing the idea of competition and instead embrace the idea of collusion? That is because the people or the entities that they really help and they really support, the, the private banks, the mega banks throughout the world, are very interrelated. So you can't have one failure of one country's banking system not sort of poison other countries' banking systems and vice versa at the same time. So when the financial crisis happened, which was predominantly caused by a U.S. bank, um, because they were the ones who were manufacturing these these toxic assets. They were the ones who were lending around the world and to even their member banks in order to buy them. So basically, they were producing junk, and they were also lending money to investors um, and banks to buy that junk. So when the junk was shown to be junk, 
all of a sudden, not only people don't have value in the junk, they also can't pay their loans back. So this was a crisis throughout a global system. So what the Fed couldn't do is simply save the U.S. banks, because that would have been like them throwing money down an even bigger hole, because the banks with whom the U.S. banks operated in Europe and Japan and so forth um, would then have losses relative to U.S. bank toxic assets. And so what the Fed had to do and why this collusion happened was it had to get the major central banks around the world to say, look, um, yeah, you might have to care about your own countries or your own regions, but right now we need to care about the banking system and we can't plug one hole when 17 other holes are still opened and leaking. And so we have to work together. So if the United States central bank, the Fed, reduces rates to zero, which means that banks pay nothing, no interest on money that they are given or that they can access or they take from the Fed. Um, and as a result, we, we all have almost 0% you know, returns, yeah, interest rate on our savings accounts. Um, then it has to happen everywhere else. We can't have a situation where one part is fixed and the rest isn't. And so we have a global system now run by the major central banks where the interest rates on average around the world are zero. They are negative in Europe. They are negative in Bank of Japan, which is a crazy concept to deal with. But basically, it's like the central banks are paying money to banks to take money from them. Um, and, and so it's, it's a crazy system, and the, the result of which is we don't have enough interest payments for people in savings accounts, pensions, and so forth. But the banks get money really, really cheap because they are like the children of the parents, and the parents are the central banks, and the children have misbehaved, and the parents are basically rewarding for uh, them for that, that misbehavior. They can't cut one country out. But what has happened is some of the less powerful countries can't put their money at zero because that creates too much money in the system, which inflates prices, and their people actually suffer. And so what's happened in the last 10 years is countries like, um, like Brazil or like Mexico have had to try to figure out how to not be a part of this sort of elite group of 0% interest central banks um, by trying to actually work for their own economies. And that's created political ramifications for leaders who've tried to do that in those countries. So this was a major inequality shift in, in the world that a lot of people feel on the ground but actually happened in a, in a far elevated way that, that I'm trying to uncover for them in collusion. So if, if collusion and conjured money are at least temporarily keeping our financial system afloat, shouldn't we be grateful for these policies? Well, this is the thing. It depends what part of the financial system um, actually gets down to, to the rest of of people. So, for example, 10% of Americans own 84% of the stock market. So the banks are using money to buy their own stock, and the major corporations are using money to buy their own stock, which elevates the market, which looks good. The reality is most people aren't participating in that. And most people aren't receiving the same generosity that these banks receive. So, for example, if you have a credit card payment late on a 12% credit card, your, your rate will get bumped up to 28%. That kind of thing doesn't happen to banks. What banks have uh, been able to do is, is, is not pay a lot or, or threaten that they won't be able to pay a lot and therefore get a lot of money um, very, very cheaply or free. And that's actually ultimately destabilizing 
to the system because what will happen is if the Fed were to take that money away or to raise rates and make the cost of money a little bit higher, um, that's when we start to see sort of cracks in the system. That's when corporations start to not be able to repay things. That's when they start to cut expenses and fire people. And anyway, throughout this entire process, it's not like wages have increased um, in anywhere near the proportion that the stock market has increased or that CEO pay at the banks and, and these other larger corporations has increased. So it, 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 it it's helpful if um, you're a major participant in the stock market. It's helpful if you look at the sort of, you know, banner things. But it's sort of like the Titanic. You know, there there were rafts available um, for the rich people, and for the most part, even though many people went down with that, uh, with that ship, um, the people that didn't were the people in sort of upper class who had access to the rafts, and and that's kind of what we're dealing with here. You write that uh, eight years after the crisis began, the big six U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, collectively held 43% more deposits, 84% more assets, and triple the amount of cash they held before. The Fed has allowed the biggest banks on Wall Street to essentially double the risk that devastated the system in the financial crash of 2008. What explains why the Fed would put these banks into the position of, as you see it, inevitable failure? Why, why create the same circumstances, but this time twofold, that were seen as reasons for the financial collapse? Or does the Fed simply not believe that concentration of banking was behind the failure? Um, the Fed doesn't appear to believe that because the Fed hasn't um, throughout any of this process, and this includes the, the Fed chairs, um, Ben Bernanke, who was the, the Fed chair at the beginning of the crisis, Janet Yellen, who was the Fed chair in the middle of this process, and, and currently now Jerome Powell under Trump, who is the, the most recent chair of the Fed. None of these people um, seem to think that breaking up the banks or separating um, their deposits, i.e. our deposits, from their, their speculative or more risky activities is necessary. None of them advocate that. Um, Janet Yellen, had advocated the idea that the banking system was fine. Um, I, was, I was actually at uh, the meeting, the conference that was happening um, in, in late 2000, uh, middle 2015 before they started to raise rates or increase a little bit the cost of money where, where she said that internally, and it's been said publicly as well. Um, but, you know, they refused to believe that there's a problem, even though the Fed itself has $4.5 trillion of money subsidizing the banking system. That is historic. To put that into perspective, um, before the financial crisis, there was about 300000 uh, $300 billion, which is a small percentage of that, sort of on offer just in case of emergencies. And now it's $4.5 trillion. So that number has just gone um, completely lopsided. And, and it is the same throughout the major central banks around the world. All these central bankers, all of these leaders, Mario Draghi in uh, Europe, uh, the European Central Bank head, uh, Kuroda in uh, the Bank, Bank of Japan, they don't want to believe that what they have done by conjuring money to help the banking system and by keeping banks, and this is more particularly a U.S. problem, um, as complex as they are, as integrated with deposits as they are, is a problem. It's, it's, it's bizarre. But then you look back at 2007 and Ben Bernanke, who was the head of the Fed at the time, as the housing crisis was clearly um, happening. And his banks had clearly taken the mortgage loans at the time and concocted all sorts of bells and whistles around them and sold them throughout the world and lent uh, money to, to to people and companies and, and banks to buy them, um, you know, said everything was fine. And, and this was just sort of a blip. And yet they knew, they saw the numbers that were coming into banks. When I worked in banking, um, throughout the years, it isn't like no one had a clue as to the fact that, that certain things were going wrong. And what the banks did was say, okay, 
these loans are going wrong. So what we're going to do is we're going to repackage them and sell them and make money off of them. So we're okay. And whatever happens after that happens. Um, this is still the operational sort of structure that, that we have. Um, why they refuse to see this? Because they're in power. It's not their money. It's money they can fabricate. If it's not your money on the line, you tend to be a lot more blind to what could really go wrong. You write that the largest private banks, including J.P. Morgan, Deutsche Bank, and HSBC, that inhaled this cheap money from the Fed were not required to increase their lending to the Main Street economy as a condition of the availability of that money. Would, do you think they would have taken the money if they were required to give it to Main Street? Because I'm trying to determine if the Obama plan of giving this uh, you know, cheap money to these banks was something that you know, was meant not to help Main Street. Could have they just said, look, give it to Main Street and they would have taken the money and Main Street would have been doing better? That's really an excellent thing. And, and um, I, um, I wrote that exact policy in, in a book I put out um, in 2009. So just as the crisis was, was really hitting its, 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 its worst moment um, with that exact idea, like instead of, um, and this was before trillions of dollars were available, this was just the beginning of, of what ultimately happened, that if you had instead helped, for example, those people with those mortgages, it would have had a, a, a double effect. One is it would have helped the people with the mortgages, it would help keep people in their homes, it would have been kinder. Um, and it would also have been better economics, because instead of paying um, what's now $21 trillion globally, and, and lots of other bells and whistles and subsidies along the way over these years. You know, this is what's just available right now and, and, and is staying available. Um, you know, you would have paid probably a half a trillion, so a very small 5% of that, um, literally to fix every single problematic mortgage at the time. Um, and that would have been far cheaper, but that was not the decision. The decision was, let's write um, through these central banks, because they're theoretically independent of government policy, which is connected to banking policy, these blank, unlimited checks to these institutions, and there's still no limitations. The European Central Bank is, is continuing um, to buy corporate bonds now throughout Europe of, of the major countries and not the countries that are doing less well economically. Um, so the whole design of this process has really been not to help Main Street. Yeah, they could have. It was, a, it was an emergency powers clause in the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 that basically could have given the Fed latitude to say, look, yeah, we're going to give you this money, but you have to um, restructure this amount of loans, uh, mortgages. You have to ultimately, as the years went on, help to cancel this amount of student debt, or you have to basically lower uh, small business loan money and make it more available to help grow the bottom part, the foundation part of the economy. Maybe the banks wouldn't have taken it. Now they won't take it. They wouldn't have taken it along the years. But I think at the time of the crisis, when they're looking at potentially closing um, and potentially going bankrupt like the Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers, that the banks that have remained standing um, in that situation might have accepted some of those restrictions or some of that diversion of money into the real economy. They, it wasn't an option. No one, no, one, no one thought that could be a good idea um, because, again, it was, it was money sort of from the top of the system that has remained at the top of the system, and there wasn't really a thought um, to putting those, uh, you know, sort of rules in, involved in that money. So, so there's a lot of things in, in, involved in, in why this has happened. A lot of it's just elite policy that's remained elite. And, um, and I think, though, there, there was an opportunity, um, and there probably will be again in, in the next emergency crisis where – if central bankers wanted to, they could put restrictions on what can happen to the money that they provide cheaply to the major banks. I doubt they'll do it, 
Um, I hope they do it, and um, they should have last time. So then how would you rate uh, President Obama's bank bailout and his response to the 2008 financial crisis? After all, many Democrats praise it for leading to eight years of decreasing unemployment and eight years of stock market increases. So is the outcome of Obama's bank bailout good for the markets, good for workers, and good for banks? Um, It's good for markets and good for banks. And yes, the unemployment rate is lower, but that said, um, the, the way in which people are employed today is, is more tenuous. People have more jobs. People get less benefits. Wages have not increased um, barely at all with respect to inflation during a 10-year period, whereas the stock prices of banks have gone up by three or four times. So, um, yeah, it's good for some people, not for others. It was not just the policy of the Obama administration. It was the policy of the Federal Reserve under the Obama administration. Um, and I think the fact that we haven't had a crisis during this period is simply because um, the central banks have colluded to such a mass extent in terms of the money they fabricated that they've plastered over um, potential problems by just throwing money at them. I mean, it's like if you go to a casino and you're sitting at a blackjack table and like you lose the first seven hands and you know the guy next to you says, yeah, no problem. Here's like 10 grand. Just just keep playing. And you lose another seven. Here's another 10 grand. You lose another seven. It's like, well, here's 50. Um, then you have no incentive to really change. And like at some point you'll start winning hands just because you've had all this money to, to help you do that. And then at some point, if you have to pay it back, there will be a real problem. So right now, the fact that this subsidy still exists and is still in place for banks have enabled the financial system to look like it's healthier. Um, it hasn't lifted the level of wages anywhere near what it could have had it been used a different way. Um, and I don't think that policy has been successful because what it has done is merely push that risk in a more consolidated, concentrated banking system into the future. Um, There wasn't another financial crisis under Obama. There may be one under President Trump. There may be one if if he goes in for another term or some other Democrat or or whomever takes that spot, Um, because nothing has been fundamentally changed in the system. And it has and continues to be subsidized by central bank policy. Why can't the banks simply keep creating conjured money ad infinitum? Why is shock, as you write, inevitable? Um, They they can continue to create it, but at some point, um, there will be too much of a gap between money that's even repaying um, very cheap debt at the corporate and bank level because um, their their health is really predicated on on so much of a subsidy. Though, so at some point, um, you know, it's like when a person continues to open zero interest rate, say, credit cards to pay off their last debt, um, and they're not making enough money to really pay beyond um, the principal of those or the, the sort of minimum monthly payments of those credit cards, at some point, any negative situation that comes into play could disrupt that whole sort of line of, of 0% interest credit cards. It's the same thing at the top of the financial system, only the ramifications would be that much greater, which is why, you know, as you're saying, Chuck, there, there, there is a sense that these central banks want to keep this party going. Um, they are colluding with each other to continue to make sure that money throughout the the developed, the, the stronger countries of the world continues to be cheaply available to the top of their system. They'd like to continue that forever. Point though, there there will come a time where one sort of domino falls and, and one um, area of, of companies or of individuals paying into banks or some of the new toxic assets that have been created start to feel little little, uh, you know, little shakes. Um, And at that point, the Fed and these central banks will continue to put more money into it. And at some point, there will be not enough money put in to make up for the um, speed at which 
uh, things are starting to crumble. And that's that's in general when you have another crisis, when you can't borrow your way out of um, a situation that you don't have enough money to control. Well, that's frightening. Uh, you revealed the ascent and interaction of the world's elite uh, central bankers who accumulated unprecedented power and influence over the world economy following the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. These undemocratically selected officials have irrevocably transformed the very system they were sworn to protect. Not that capitalism was democratic before, but how much more undemocratic has global capitalism become under the Fed, the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan? Well, in the last 10 years, they have, because they've um, gone crazy with the sort of the zero interest rate policy, quantitative easing, or basically conjuring money in order to um, buy certain assets out of the market to basically propel financial markets higher, um, it's become worse because there has just been no limitation. They're not not elected leaders. Um, They're appointed, um, which is why there's this notion that they're independent. But for example, the chair of the Fed is appointed by the president. They're confirmed or rejected by Congress. Congress has never rejected an appointee. Um, So so there's a very strong political connection, regardless of what um, people say about the independence or not. There's also a lot of sort of musical chairs happening amongst the leaders of central banks. So for example, Mario Draghi, who's the head of the European Central Bank, was the head of the Bank of Italy um, in the beginning of the financial crisis years. The Bank of Italy was, was having a real struggle because Italy, as sort of one of the, the, the poorer, more, more, more sort of risk-laden co- uh, countries in, in, in Southern Europe relative to stronger countries like Germany and Europe, was having some real problems. So fortunately, he had enough sort of relationship power to get um, a higher position in the European Central Bank, where he has been helping countries that are not Italy buy more than countries that are like Italy. Um, so they have become more powerful um, in this decade through uh, sort of the movements of people from the sort of less um, so less powerful central banks to higher powerful central bank power, um, from the relationship to, to presidents, the relationship to banks, um, that has just become more of an issue because of the amount of money they've been able to fabricate. There's there's no legal uh, restriction on, on the money they can fabricate. And so they've been able to, they are the market. Um, they are the financial system. And that, that presents um, a greater power to people that don't have to even answer to shareholders. They don't even have to publicly disclose where the money is going. And they don't, they're not basically elected, so they don't have to answer to the public. And you're right that the 21st century gave rise to a financial world war. Conjured money was the weapon of choice. Fabricated funds went towards subsidizing the private banking system and buying government debt, corporate debt, and stocks. By providing the grease that kept money flowing, central bankers superseded governments. They set the cost of money and provided the confidence and ongoing liquidity. The world was their battlefield. How much do you think the world views this as a war against them? Uh, who And who are the victims of this war? Developing nations and economies, everybody, even citizens of the U.S., Europe, and Japan who have the central banks that are determining where the money is going? So I, I dedicated my book in the dedication page uh, to the citizens of the world. And, and when I handed it in, my publisher was kind of like, well, well that's grand. <laughs> and I said, well, but, but it's true, because the reality is um, that – it, it, this this is a fight in which the the, the weapon of, of money the, the ability to create money um, is is confined to uh, central banks the private banks and sort of the major people um, financially and economically at the top of the world who don't have the ability to just fabricate money um, and so in that respect the sort of 
financial weaponry has, has really become much more skewed, which means that inequality has become that much more skewed, which means that the developed nations that were already um, at an economic disadvantage to the, the major uh, developed countries, the developing nations, the emerging market nations, um, are actually more at a disadvantage because they didn't have um, the ability to really use that same financial uh, weaponry. So um, it's it's really created inequality amongst, um, or increased inequality um, uh, amongst countries um, in the world, in individual countries as well. Um, and, you know, for example, in Europe, between the South uh, of Europe that were less economically um, apt, uh, less, sorry, less economically strong um, versus the core countries of Europe that were stronger to begin with. Um, and it's really just rewarded that strength um, on a global basis and on a citizen's basis. And, and again, we, we as individual citizens in any of these countries um, don't have the ability to just, you know, stick another 10 grand or 20 grand or 100 grand in our bank account. We, we can't do that. Um, but these private banks, were provided that by the central bank. How has a state of financial emergency then become the norm? And, and what happens when our financial system is permanently the system that was used to supposedly get us out of the 2008 financial crisis? After all, that 2008 crisis is reportedly long over. So can we leave the state of financial emergency now? And how difficult would that be? Well, if we did that, if central banks were to all of a sudden sell the $21 trillion of assets they have amassed on their books in return for um, infusing cash, infusing money into into the financial systems. And that's just a portion of it. There's more ramifications beyond $21 trillion. That's just like one, one, of, one of them. Um, it would create a, a massive implosion in the stock market and the bond market. Um, it would create an implosion in the bond market in, in debt um, because all of a sudden, if there isn't this, this extra buyer, of debt, which are the central banks in the world, and it has less value. If it has less value, um, then the prices of um, securities that are or assets that are connected to debt go down, which means their rates go up, which means companies that borrowed money have to now make more money to pay back on their borrowing. Um, and if they haven't really grown or put it into development or infrastructure or their employees or anything to begin with, they have nowhere to get it from or they would have to borrow more expensively, or banks just close their doors to more borrowing. And so then you have that crisis. You have the stock market coming down because all of a sudden um, that money's not available to companies to purchase their own stock, which is one of the reasons that the stock market is so high. Um, so we are in this permanent, we, we, we are living in an unprecedented environment in which without that subsidy, Things would implode very, very quickly, which is why it continues to be pushed from what be what has become a permanent state of emergency, but what started out as just an emergency. How much is the Dow constantly going up? How much is that driven by the Fed conjuring money and giving it to banks to invest as they please? So I um I have a chart on this, or I should put up another chart on this. Um, on, on my Twitter at Nomi Prince, where you can see just a straight line up, really, um, of the amount of quantitative easing or, or money that just the three central banks, the top ones, the, the Fed and the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan have dumped in the market. Um, and then there's one where you superimpose the, the SP 500, which basically is more or less similar to, to the Dow um, in terms of just direction and, and day-to-day movements. And um, you can kind of see that they're really on top of each other, <laughs> that, that there's, there's really a direct line 
little bit different from the days in which um, quantitative easing or, or the sort of money has been infused into the um, markets, into the banking system, um, and, and the level of, of the stock market. And the days in which more recently, for example, the stock market has kind of um, been a little bit more up and down, um, has had days where it's gone down during a trading day by five or 600 points or 700 points and then sort of pop back up. Um, those are days where there was a little bit of a step off the gas pedal of one or all of these three central banks. Um, so they didn't come in fast enough to help the other one. And, um, and then they come in after that and then the market goes up. So it, it's very highly correlated. Um, and then the fact that banks can get this money and they have, for example, in the United States, banks have to ask the Fed for permission as the main regulator of banks to buy their stock. They actually have to formally request whether they can use some of their money to buy their own stock. And the Fed could say no, um, but it hasn't and it doesn't. Um, and so there's a direct line from that to banks having availability of cheap money, deciding to buy their own stocks, which propels their stock up. It's, it's very highly connected. So what would you say to someone who argues, big deal, central banks now control the world instead of Wall Street, it's still capitalism. How does it make any difference? How will a world dominated by, how does a world dominated by central banks look different from a world dominated by Wall Street? Um, well, first, so central banks are helping Wall Street. So what it's done is it's, 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 it's not different in that it's, um, Wall Street's still involved. Um, it's different in that Wall Street has been um, subsidized for many more crimes. The, the risk inherent in the system and the, the bad behavior um, is actually more embedded than it was before. So it's 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 kind of more of the same but worse. Um, and having the central banks subsidize the system um, simply means that the idea of just sort of uh, you know working for a higher wage or or producing real um, real things and having growth um, of one company to another because they're working together on something or, or having infrastructure be built because there's actually financing available to do that um, or whatever the case becomes secondary to, um, you know, the appearance of financial health that's produced by um, by, by really this, this extra source of, of central bank money. So what it does is it skews capitalism um, by that much more. And as we know, there are many crises that have happened in the financial system over the years. And when there's more money infused into the system, whether it's because speculators want to buy stuff before the 1929 crash, and whether it's before the 2008 crash, um, and now before whatever the crash year is, the next crash year is, um, we're just really falling from a higher height. That, that's why it's a concern. I mean, that's why it was a concern to me, because, you know, you, you have all this extra money in the system, um, and it's being used to elevate speculation and not real growth. There's, there's a major line between those two that continues to, to grow. Um, then we're dealing with more of a sort of false sense of security than before. So it's not so much capitalism has changed. It's just there's an added level of artificiality that makes it that much less stable. So just to make certain that our audience understands this, in 2004, you were telling people you were writing in your book that uh, the financial crisis of 2008 was going to happen. How inevitable is another crisis? Will it be worse than 2008, worse than 1929? And is it happening so sooner rather than later? Um, it will happen. And it's the same thing I said in 2004. Um, and then I sort of blamed or pre-blamed uh, credit derivatives and sort of that new part of, of what was happening in the financial system. Um, and there's real pages that do that in there. I don't remember the exact words, but um, that's, that was why. There was two things going on. The financial system wasn't um, 
structured in such a way that deposits and loans were separated from um, these speculative um, asset creation sort of machines that, that were the banks. They basically had the ability to call upon their connection to real people as a way to help them, and that's what they did. Um, when the financial crisis of 2008 happened. Um, now the reason that we're, another crash is inevitable is because nothing has been fixed from that period. The only thing that has changed is that there's been this sort of new set of power brokers, the, the central banks that have just operated on an, on an unprecedented basis, helping to gloss over these problems. So the next crisis can't not happen it's it's really just a question of time. Um, I think the central bankers have gotten very good, and this is where the collusion happens in, in, in sort of hold, having each other's backs. Um, if one market starts to falter or if one central bank wants to spend the Fed so far, raise rates a little bit, the others step in and lower them. Um, so on average, it stays um, like the cost of money is the same for the uh, major players at the major economies. But um, that it can't continue forever um, simply because at some point, there will be a disconnect that will be un that won't be able to be papered over between money coming in to repay debt that's been created and money being provided artificially from these central banks. At which point, um, you know, crises start to happen. So I, I can't see how that doesn't occur. I don't know the timing. Um, I I think that they've gotten again very good at this game. And um, that said, there's been a lot more um, sort of cracks in the wall of what they've done. Defaults are starting to increase. Um, consumers are starting to be more pinched at the, at the money level, not at the sort of main economic, everybody's doing well level that, that we're told by, by governments and by these central bankers. And I think ultimately um, that's going to cause another crash. We have been speaking with Nomi Prinz. Nomi is author of the brand new book, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. You can find out more about Nomi on Twitter at Nomi Prinz. You can follow her on Instagram at Instagram.com slash real Nomi Prinz. And you can visit Nomi's website at NomiPrinz.com. As always, Nomi, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And lucky you, I have two for you. The first one is... Do you blame banks or capitalism, or are the two inseparable? That is, that big banks' actions are indicative of capitalism in general, or are they outliers, even cheaters, who are ruining capitalism for everyone? I would say the answer to that is both of those things. I, I would say, yes, banks are part of capitalism. The idea of what banks do in capitalism or for capitalism is instead of using money for productive purposes, they use money or capital to create more capital, um, sort of at its purest form that that is capitalism. And so the more um, that banks fail or, or commit crimes and are rewarded with extra money and use that extra money to create more money, uh, the more they are a part of capitalism, but they're ma they're making capitalism um, worse and more risky. So so they are they're in and of it, and they are also um, in, in in this case now not even creating money to make money; they're being given money to make money. Um, and then from the standpoint of you know sort of uh, the second question that that just really comes from comes from the first. I mean, the banks will um, you know sort of continue to be a part of this, and and capitalism itself um, will continue to uh, reward those that create money from nothing and, and use it to, to increase that path. And the second question from hell for you, lucky you. You write how shortly after 
I left Goldman Sachs partly because life was too short, partly out of disgust at how citizens everywhere had become collateral damage and later hostages to the banking system. Since then, I've dedicated my work to exposing the intersections of money and power and deciphering the impact of the relationships between governments and central and private bankers on the citizens of the world. Do you view the victims of 9-11 as collateral damage caused by the banking system? Um, it's, the victims of 9-11 are, are collateral damage. I think of that, that the inequality that, it's been, that, that the banking system um, with governments imposed on, on citizens and, and for different reasons. So if you're uh, anyone who's in any kind of, of, of warfare and, and um, any kind of um, situation where there's, there's no sort of options, um, could have the potential to get sort of aggressive and, and and violent, and obviously there's a lot of insane and crazy people um, anyway, and terrorism anyway um, that are part of that. But but on a on a sort of broader basis, when when there are citizens that are not being served by by their governments or that are um, not being served by how the sort of global government operates relative to to countries and relative to individuals, um, then there's a lot of economic anxiety. Um, I was having a conversation this morning, actually, with um, with an economist on this. We were talking about the link, or he was talking about the link between Tiananmen Square in 89, um, the sort of Seattle WTO um, protests in 99, the Arab Spring, and so forth, and that in all these situations, um, it's it's people who are... um, uprising to some extent against different kinds of forms of, of government power, but because they produce real economic um, anxiety and, and uncertainty um, for people. Nomi, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being back on our show. We look forward to having you on again in the future. And I'm still shocked that somebody actually mentioned the radio show to you in Washington, D.C. It's still surprising to me. All right. Thank you very much, Nomi. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Truck spoke with Nomi Prins in May of this year. Hi, producer Alex. Uh, We are celebrating capitalism on This Is Hell, or at least This Is Hell interviews about capitalism. Next up is Pavo Jarvinsuvu and Terry Vaden from September. Capitalism's done. It had a good run. Actually, it didn't. Capitalism's run has been pretty devastating for the planet, and we need to move away from it if we don't want to live in a despotic world of chaos and violence. Here to tell us why and to discuss our potential futures, biophysical economist Pavo Yarvinsivu and philosopher Tara Vaden are co-authors of the report Governance of Economic Transition, which was written at the invitation of the UN Secretary General for next year's UN Global Sustainable Development Report. Welcome to This Is Hell. First of all, welcome to you, Pavo. Thank you. And welcome to you, Tara. Thank you. Welcome to both of you. Pavo and Tara wrote the report with their colleagues, Tero Toivainen, Villa Lada, Antti Mayava, and UCT Aronin. You can find out more about the report by going to the BIOS website, bios.fi slash en for the English version. And you can follow BIOS on Twitter at BIOS Research. Pavo, first to you. You are a biophysical economist. What is biophysical economics? Uh, well, I uh, my background is in a in a business school, um, so I have a doctorate in business administration. Um, you could uh, say that I I I've focused on economic sociology, um, 
um, from the point of view of which you can kind of see that the mainstream economics, uh, it, it hasn't really touched upon the kind of uh, um, biophysical uh, dimensions of the economy, nor actually cultural or social or political dimensions of the economy. So, so um, I think all these dimensions um, need to be considered if, if we are to kind of move on from these kind of uh, current mainstream economic understandings. Well, let's uh, follow up on that, uh, Tara. Uh, what do we miss in our understanding of our current capitalist system when we don't consider the interconnectedness of all the different aspects of our economy? Well, for instance, the the idea is that there is this uh, free market or, or uh, marketplace for all kinds of goods and, goods and stuff, which uh, disregards the fact that in order to have a marketplace, you have to have uh, energy to get to the marketplace. You have to have the social rules, the social institutions, how you behave on a marketplace and so on. So that, that's all, all of the background stuff that gets lost if you just uh, think in, in the sort of like classic Chicago school of economics ways. So, Pavo, what explains to you why those things are not, uh, why we don't pay attention to those inputs more often? Why do we ignore, uh, for instance, why do we ignore the environmental costs to the economy when we are trying to uh, create the energy resources that are needed for the economy to move forward? Mm, well, that's a really good question. And and I think you could also pose it in a way that what makes it possible uh, for us not to consider these energy and material issues. Because if you consider, um, let's say, 200 years back, it was quite obvious that if you're running your economy, you need to really consider where you get your energy and what you can achieve in those material uh, terms. Um, so, of course, after after that, we've we've uh, witnessed a period of massive growth in, in, in fossil fuels. Um, every year we have, we have had more and more um, energy to use in, in society. So um, if you consider the situation now, we are kind of in, in a situation where it's really difficult for us to understand that what, like our basic uh, everyday lives. So, uh, what are the kind of energetic and uh, material conditions that are needed for our everyday lives? So basic situations, it's really difficult to understand how much energy is needed to move to your workplace or to produce your food or something like this. Um, so it's no wonder also in a, in a kind of a theoretical or academic sense that we have lost the kind of sense of these um, energetic and material dimensions. And, and this is something that um, my colleague here, Tere, has uh, worked on from kind of a philosophical standpoint. Yeah, Chuck, if I can follow, follow up, up on that, you mentioned steamships earlier in the historical, histor historical section. So if you're a steamship captain, you, you are uh, sort of, it's a part of your sort of professional pride to know what kind of uh, energy, what kind of coal you are using in your steamship. But if you are a captain in a, in a sort of like a diesel run 
uh, boat or if you if you uh, if you are running your car, you don't have to care about the gasoline or whatever you put into the tank. And that's a very sort of uh, very concrete way of of getting distance from the energetic roots. And the and the huge irony there is that we have this illusion of independence for, from nature, independence from energy resources, simply because there was this huge natural bounty of, of, of uh, very highly concentrated, high-quality fossil fuels. Tara, let me follow up on that then, just uh, as a little bit of an aside, because it's just something I was thinking of when you were responding. How much do you think climate change has been dismissed by those who are climate change denialists simply because our economics, our system of capitalism, doesn't know how to address a systemic challenge like climate change? Do we ignore or dismiss or deny climate change because our economic system doesn't have the vocabulary to deal with climate change? I think that's that's part of the problem. Sort of the the uh, illusion of independence, the, the utopian idea that we can continue like this, sort of produces a certain kind of blindness and lack of concepts and and lack of framework, frameworks for dealing with the uh, the fact of sort of uh, how do you want um, well, if you want to call it like nature hitting back or whatever you want to however you want to conceptualize the fact that of of climate change that that nature was there and and that energy was not just a nice thing that you can use when you use energy you also get all kinds of negative things pavo can there be simple minor adjustments made to save capitalism or can it simply no longer continue how unsustainable does your report argue capitalism really is? Hmm. Um, that's the kind of a question that we ha- we have been asked quite a lot uh, since we published the report. Um, and I've tended to kind of uh, go around it by saying that that's, that's not actually our kind of focus in the paper because... Um, it kind of depends on what still uh, counts as capitalism. So what we are saying there is that um, um, within the kind of 20 to 30 years, we have a certain really radical um, tasks that we need to accomplish. Um, so we need to um, actually rebuild our infrastructure and practices so that we we are not so reliant on fossil fuels anymore. So we actually need to um, rebuild how we uh, do transport and produce energy and produce food and and so on. Um, so we are there kind of interested in not so much the, on the effects of capitalism, but what kind of um, economic governance or how we could govern uh, the capitalistic system or or the market economy so that we could achieve these kind of needed transformations. Um, and of course, if we really start to do these uh, transformations, so we are collectively guiding the economy and the society towards um, radically less 
um, emitting um, ways of moving around and producing food and housing and so on, then um, probably the end result is something uh, not so similar to the capitalism we have now, which is, of course is uh, really um, kind of dependent on the idea of ever ever growing consumption and and it seems that it's even dependent on ever growing energy use and so on. Pavel, let me follow up on that with you then, uh, because your paper, not only does your paper suggest what some of the solutions can be, uh, they, it also points out the economic crises that capitalism is facing today. There is an article about your report at motherboard.com, and they report that climate change and species extinctions are accelerating even as societies are experiencing rising inequality, unemployment, slow economic growth, rising debt levels, and impotent governments. Contrary to the way policymakers usually think about these problems, the new report said that these are not really separate crises at all. So, Pavo, why do we want to think of these as separate problems? How do, how do you, uh, why do we think of these, why do we want to think of these as separate problems? Why do we want to think of inequality as separate from uh, any kind of debt problems we're having, any kind of impotent governments we're, we're having? What leads us to thinking that these are separate problems? Mm. Well, I, I really think that we are currently kind of unable to think these um these dimensions in an interconnected way. So it's really difficult for us to uh, think of uh, or to have a sense of energy and materials and these sort of things at the same time as we are talking of the economy. It's, it's of course, if, if we just open the newspaper, you read every day about the economy, there's an economy section, uh, but it, it never really discusses the kind of material foundations of economic activity or businesses or something like this. It's it's mostly on the kind of very abstract uh, monetary level, basically, or profits, profits and losses and these kind of things. Um, so it's that's just the way we have we have been taught to uh, consider the economy. And this is, of course, a huge task then to change how we think of the economy. And Tara, just following up on that, so these current signs, uh, current crises that we are facing when it comes to our economic order, our economic system, when it comes to capitalism, uh, are these not just some temporary fluctuations within our economy, but signs of our system not only failing now, but permanently collapsing? Are the challenges facing capitalism today the beginning of the end of capitalism, or are these just bumps along the road in the history of capitalism? Well, they are quite existential crises, and and you can look at look at those from two perspectives. From the if you if you take the biophysical perspective from from the perspective of of inputs and outputs. So the input quality to the economic system in in, in biophysical terms is is going down because the energy return of of uh, energy sources. Is going down fossil fuels. Uh, we, we need to do fracking and, and go to Arctic areas and so on to get to get the oil and the energy return levels of so-called renewable sources is, is is a lot lower. And and we are already using pretty much all the arable land for farming and so on. So the input side is is facing a hard limit. And then the output side, which is the climate change 
climate change uh, is, is, the, is the sort of the biggest phenomenon there. There are also other output problems that we output too much carbon dioxide and, and we kill too many animals and, and, and sort of the sinks are not there anymore. So the, the limits are being hit right now. Pavo, uh, will the cost of fossil fuels simply make them unsustainable? Will the market reveal that fossil fuels no longer work within our economy? I think it's really clear that the market cannot uh, price these fossil fuels properly. So, of course, if we're talking of the real costs, they are um, huge Um and we are already seeing them in, in also in the rich Western countries. Um, but still, we are kind of acting along the market prices. So what makes economic sense, we still look at the daily market prices. And we don't so much uh, consider the kind of longer term costs or the real costs that we are in a way, still reading from the same newspaper, but from a different section, you might say. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, Tara, what will happen if we do continue to generate the energy we want for material use, if we simply ignore the cost of climate change, uh, if we continue on our system of capitalist overconsumption, or will it be impossible to ignore? What will happen is is what's happening right now. (laughs) You know what's, what's happening. So it's like in, in Finland today, it's a very hot, hot nice uh, autumn day, and it's like 10 or 15 degrees above what it should be. So there's a very ominous feeling to enjoying the, the weather and, and, and sort of like, okay, so, so people will uh, find it harder and harder to get food. People, people will find it harder and harder to sort of sustain or, or sort of uh, have any kind of healthy ecosystems and, and so on. So that's, that's what's uh, going to continue if we don't change. Let me ask you something, Pavo. Uh, the report says that decades of academic work and ecological economics have gone into integrating in energetic and material stocks, flows, and boundaries into economic thinking. Although some progress can be seen on the economic theoretical level, the economic models which inform political decision-making in rich countries almost completely disregards the energetic and material dimensions of the economy. So, Pavo, is the point of your work, is the point of this report that you were invited to give this report to the UN, is the point of your work and the works you cite in your report to get policymakers to consider energetic and material dimensions of the economy, that is, get them to recognize what you call sink costs and the direct economic cost of climate change caused by capitalism's overconsumption? Is that your goal, to bring attention to these kinds of inputs on the economy? Hmm, that's definitely one of the goals we have there. Um, and we, and I think that, um, we have kind of a different strategy than, than the kind of, um, decades of work that you just mentioned, um, on the kind of theoretical level. So we are actually not so much interested in, in kind of bringing along these energetic and material dimensions into the theories. Uh, economic theories, but we are uh, kind of looking at the and highlighting some 
uh, economic thinking and some economic policy tools that could actually help um, governments in achieving these kind of um, tran uh, transformations in society that we earlier talked about. Um, and I think that uh, if we are kind of, uh, if this goal is to improve the um, how we understand these material or natural limits to economy, so to speak, uh, then that's that's always a kind of a multidisciplinary task. So it seems unlikely that we can have like one economic advisor to the government that could take on these all these dimensions properly, but actually we need to engage in a kind of multidisciplinary um, work that then uh, kind of uh, sets the real um, boundaries for policymakers. Pavo, you're quoted at Motherboard saying more expensive energy doesn't necessarily lead to economic collapse. Of course, people won't have the same consumption opportunities. There's not enough cheap energy available for that. But they are not mm -hmm. automatically leading to unemployment and misery either. If expensive energy doesn't automatically lead to economic collapse, then how certain is the collapse of capitalism due to climate change? Mm -hmm. It, it's well, of course, the current um, kind of dominant political thinking is is around the kind of lack of money, so lack of public funding and so on. Um, so this can this can be um, debated on 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 many levels, and and we've been looking into these kind of post-Keynesian discussions or the discussions under modern money theory and so on. Um, and you can argue that actually uh, money is not the kind of limiting factor in us doing these tran transformations or money is actually not limiting whether we have employment opportunities or not, or even um, Yes, so so we can manage economy, or or we can kind of collectively guide the economy, and that's not guided by money, but it's it's uh, it's uh, bounded by these um, well technology and natural resources, and of course our skills and and wants and and so on. So there's a there's a huge shift that we should be doing in in that sense, that what, what are we kind of aiming for? That are we seeing businesses or, no, sorry, I mean, uh, are we seeing governments as, as kind of households or businesses just one entity acting in the market or are we seeing them as actually economically sovereign, at least in their uh, own currency and so on? So that's a big, big kind of um, discussion that, I think it's really important right now. Tara, can alternative forms of less expensive energy, at least when it comes to environmental costs, if not production costs, can we simply use clean alternative fuels and continue our current state of what your report sees as overconsumption within capitalism? Well, in a word, no, <laughs> because the, the energy return on energy investment is, is so much 
lower with those those energy sources that so much more uh, physical work is going to get is is going to be needed to get the the sort of similar amount of energy it's simply not sort of physically possible to do with with the so so called alternative energy energy sources so Tarrett, uh do we need a uh a more radical plan than what has been suggested by a lot of people who are uh, offering market-based solutions to our climate change problem, and that is carbon pricing. Can we save the planet with market solutions, including carbon pricing? Well, that's that's uh, sort of like uh, uh, putting me putting me on the spot there. Maybe in principle, if the carbon price would be really, really high enough and it would be enforced in a in a very rigorous manner so maybe in principle it's conceivable sort of like it, it's human it's not humanly impossible to conceive of, of such such sort of circumstances but again sort of realistically thinking about how how carbon pricing happens now and how it's enforced and how it's tracked and so on so no 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 way it's going to happen that's the that's the point of the sort of the paper uh, that we are that we are discussing here that the sort of transition needs a much more uh, sort of coherent and and much more sort of uh, forward-looking planning than what what sort of blind markets can do if there were if there were such a thing as, as sort of blind free markets which, which there isn't of course but sort of the, even even in the sort of uh, best possible case they would be too too play, blind to chaotic to to sort of non direct di- directional to to do the transition so it not, it needs to be planned and and uh, governed and guided much more much more coherently and and precisely Pavo, the report says economics need to transform the ways in which energy, transport, food, and housing are produced and consumed. The result should be production and consumption that provides decent opportunities for a good life while dramatically reducing the burden on natural ecosystems. In terms of greenhouse gases, global net emissions should be zero around 2050 in Europe and the U.S. by around 2040. Pavo, have you seen any indication that we are heading in that direction, that we can attain zero emissions by 2040 or 2050? Well, it is, of course, really difficult. And I think, as you suggested, we are still uh, kind of relying on the market or the technological development to do this, or that one day carbon pricing could be steep enough that we could be all right. But of course, we are really in a hurry to do these kind of um, transitions. And what makes me uh, kind of, in a way, slightly optimistic about it is that we are now, I think, sensing the effects of climate change, even here in the kind of uh, Nordic setting. So people are actually turning uh, towards looking for a kind of sense of real security in 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 the future in a kind of very material or even existential sense. Uh, so we are maybe willing to kind of uh, um, look towards our own uh, ways of consuming or or, or so on and and kind of a uh, 
uh, sacrificing something to achieve something more on the kind of collective level. And the report that you and uh, Tara are co-authors of with others from the BIOS Research Group uh, also says that you need we need to lower total energy use. Tara, does lowering total energy use necessarily mean lowering our standard of living or our quality of life? Your paper addresses how we need to re-examine the way we approach uh, housing, how we need to re-examine the way that uh, we approach transport. Does lowering total energy use mean having a lower standard of living or quality of life? No, not not necessarily, necessarily at all. But what it means is having a lower sort of material consumption, uh, but then providing for the sort of uh, necessarily, let's say, necessary services or, or wants or needs that we have as humans in, in different ways. So it doesn't necessarily, for instance, mean traveling less, but it means traveling by other means and traveling with other people, sharing and, and public transport and, and so on. I think it's good to remember that Already now in, on, on the planet, we have maybe two billion people who live within the boundaries of, of one planet. And, and maybe half of them already sort of have a, let's say, uh, quite uh, long life expect, expectancy and good literacy levels and vibrant cultural life and, and so on. So having a good quality of life with a much lower uh, energy uh, use or material consumption, it's, it's perfectly possible. It just it seems to be very difficult for us in the, in the first world or, or the north or whatever you want to call the rich countries. Uh, Tara, let me just follow up on that with you. Uh, can technology save us from lowering our energy use? Can technology uh, save us from being forced to conserve, to consume less energy? Because, you know, here in the United States, we always look to technology to saving us from whatever crisis we're about to face. Can we save our culture of overconsumption through technology? No, not, not with current technology. Of course, a miracle can happen or aliens can land or something, something like that can happen, but not, not, with, not with any sort of uh, current technology. Another ironic point actually is there, there is that the so-called alternative energy forms like, uh, let's say, photovoltaic power or nuclear power, they're actually quite old. They are decades old or, or even 100 years old in, in the case of photovoltaic. So uh, that that's sort of from the philosophical, very sort of like uh, history conscious perspective gives gives the idea that technology hasn't actually been doing that much lately. And Pavo, uh, does this need to be a government response? Does this have to be some sort of big government program that addresses what you see as the concerns when it comes to uh, energy and its inputs into the marketplace and its inputs into our economy? Does this have to be a government response or can we depend or ask the private sector to solve these problems that you've been discussing when it comes to capitalism and the environment? I think it's clear that the government is currently the only um, actor in society that can fund and organize these kind of things and that has the legitimacy also to do these kind of things. It was kind of created just for these kind of tasks. Um, and, And I think this kind of Keynesian thinking, if we come back to that a bit, 
it it's kind of a it is what we have basically done here in the Nordic countries. That's the kind of Nordic experience that we are uh, we are controlling the market economy uh, through the government, or we have kind of a mixed economy. So this is not so. Uh, this is not something totally new, um, and and many people have have constantly kind of or automatically link. Keynesian thinking to very pro-growth thinking in the sense that it would only be interested in creating more growth and and from there to have something to share with the people and so on. But it, you can actually approach Keynesian thinking also as, as, as a kind of giving tools for understanding economic governance um, collectively or politically. And there we can just kind of change the agenda or change the goal so that we are actually looking at uh, what are the necessary societal transformations and then uh, this kind of economic thinking can provide us with those tools how to do the how to do the governance so it doesn't necessarily need to uh, be aimed at growth um, in the first place but to achieve these kind of very material uh, level um, transformations. I've got one last question, a separate question for each one of you. We have been speaking with biophysical economist Pavo Yarvin Sivu and philosopher Tara Vaden, who are co-authors of the report Governance of Economic Transition, a report on the transition that our economy is about to face due to climate change, which was written at the invitation of the U.N. Secretary General for next year's U.N. Global Sustainable Development Report. You can find out more about the organization where Pavo and Tara work, which is called BIOS. You can find out more about them at bios.fi slash en for the English translated version of it. And you can follow BIOS on Twitter at BIOS Research. Tara is author of the 2004 book, Heidegger, Zizek, and Revolution. Pavo is author of Endless Money and Scarcity, which merges economics, ecological, and cultural research. Let's start with you, Pavo. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. But let's start with you, Pavo, because you were already touching on this with your last response. The uh, paper states, in view of the challenges encountered today in implementing meaningful international agreements, the most likely option for initiating transitions to sustainability would be for a group of progressive states to take the lead. This would require economic thinking that enables large public investment programs on the one hand and strong regulation environmental caps on the other. In the modern global economy, states are the only actors that have the legitimacy and capacity to fund and organize large-scale transitions. So states must regulate more, do more to protect the environment, while using more of the public's money. That all sounds like bigger government. Can the unpopularity of big government that we see so much in the global north, the, the uh, west, whatever you want to call it, can the unpopularity of big government lead us instead of into a more successful transition that you hope for? Can the unpopularity of big government lead us to chaos and violence? That's a really good question. And, and I'm really tough one. So I think we are kind of uh, forced to consider again whether we would actually uh, like big government more than these 
chaotic events that we are seeing now. And I think from the kind of Nordic perspective, it's not unconceivable that we would kind of uh, come together, uh, you know, in a way collectively to uh, make the necessary steps towards this kind of transformation. So it's not unconceivable here. It's very difficult for me to kind of comment on the U.S. level where it comes from, but but I'm sensing that the kind of uh, younger people they are not so um, affected by the kind of uh, <laughs> well, uh, what you might call the Chicago School of Economics or that kind of thinking. So that ideology not not might not be so creeping for the younger generation. So. So let's see how it goes. I think it's a balance, uh, or it's a, it's a matter of this political debates that we are having now, and 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 it's ongoing in very different ways in different parts of the world, and that's that's something we need to recognize as well. Tara, my question from hell for you is uh, your paper states that in developing countries, the regime of exporting a narrow selection of commodities and raw materials and importing cheap basic food items has not worked for local communities. A wide array of research shows that developing countries ought to focus on providing diverse nutrition for their own people and thereby increase local livelihood opportunities and improve socio-material conditions in general. So that sounds like what you are describing is the policies of the Washington Consensus, of the World Bank, of the International Monetary Fund. So to what extent does do these uh, programs like uh, the World Bank structural adjustment programs that gave loans to developing economies in exchange for those economies to open their market to cheap subsidized goods from already developed nations in the global north while changing the developing agricultural economy into one that is a monoculture, to what degree did those kinds of policies by the Washington Consensus, by the World Bank, how much is the Washington Consensus a threat to our culture of overconsumption? Mm, I'm not sure I even even sort of kind of uh, get that that question. How much is it? Do, do the do the policy do the policies where we where things like the World Bank impose upon developing nations that they become a monoculture that they open up mm-hmm. their uh, their economies to developing countries and their mar- and their goods? Does that has that led to a threat to the very culture of overconsumption that the World Bank yeah, is well, trying to promote? Now no, I got it. Yeah, of course it's it's very self defeating. That's part of the. Part of the blindness, of course. That's that's why what I find so what what what's been sort of like occupying me for, for for the last months and last years to think about the fact that supposedly we are the sort of I think in, in many people in the first world they think that after the Enlightenment and and so on we and and modern science and so on we think that we have the clearest less uh, least least sort of. Uh, Utopian, least hazy, least uh, least sort of uh, the most objective view of what it is, what it means to be human, what it is to to live as a human on, on this planet, mo- most scientific and 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 so on view view on that, and then what happens is that uh, we come up with climate change by accident, so that the biggest thing that we do is something that happens by accident. Nobody wanted it, no, nobody sort of meant it, but it happens. So uh, to me, that sort of points 
just just sort of in in a in a very very sort of deep sense points out that maybe we didn't uh, maybe we were not those those people or those humans that we thought that we were maybe our self understanding isn't so great after all and 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 the, and the paradox that you point out I think is a is a very good concrete example of of that that sort of kind of blindness. Tara and Pavo, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This has been a fascinating discussion, and everybody should check out your paper, Governance of Economic Transition. We have a direct link to it at our website. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. That's biophysical economist Pavo Yarvin-Sivu and philosopher Tara Vaden, again, co-authors of the report, Governance of Economic Transition. You can find out more about their organization, BIOS, by going to uh, bios.fi. The English translated version is at slash en, so bios.fi slash en. And you can follow BIOS on Twitter at BIOS Research. Chuck spoke with Pavo and Terry in September of this year. Hi, it's producer Alex. You're listening to a clip show all about capitalism. I guess they all are kind of. Okay, uh, next up, we're going to listen to Helena Norberg-Hodge from June. Globalization, as in the global economic system, is fueling the rise of the far-right authoritarianism and breeding hate in an age of uncertainty, insecurity, and precarity. But our next guest sees a way out here to tell us that there is an alternative award-winning new economy movement pioneer. Helena Norberg-Hodge wrote the article, Localization, a Strategic Solution to Globalized Authoritarianism, which was posted at the Transnational Institute's website. Welcome to This Is Hell, Helena. Thank you. Very glad to be here. This is fantastic writing. I just want to point out, uh, Helena is a recipient of the Alternative Nobel Prize. She is the author of the 2009 book, which you should definitely check out, Ancient Futures, Lessons from Ladakh for a Globalized World. She's also producer of the award-winning documentary, The Economics of Happiness. You write for those who care about peace, equality, and the future of the planet. The global political swing to the right over the past few years is deeply worrying. From my 40 years of experience working in both industrialized and land-based cultures, I believe the primary reason is globalization. When I say globalization, I mean the global economic system in which most of us now live, a system driven by continual corporate deregulation and shaped by neoliberal capitalist ideologies. Can globalization, which has bipartisan support here in the United States and is seen as an inevitable given of modern society, can that globalization happen without continual corporate deregulation and shaped by neoliberal capitalist ideologies? Can we have global trade without the problems you see caused by globalization? We certainly could have uh, global trade, but what we need to look at is the freedom, the deregulation that we're giving to global traders, and that includes the financial institutions and the banks. We've had a series of trade treaties ever since the Second World War that are essentially giving global corporations more and more freedom. And that freedom today means that they are forcing governments to sign in the new trade treaties what are called ISDS clauses, that stands for Investor State Dispute Settlements, in which governments are writing in black and white, we will not do anything that might reduce your profit-making potential. If we do, you can take us to court. This is why most governments are now rolling back, you know, completely reversing 
both labor and environmental protection that has been brought in, you know, through the hard work of countless numbers of people and organizations, because they are essentially blindly going along with so-called free trade, which is not actually free trade, it's forced trade, it's senseless trade. It includes importing and exporting the same product from water to toxic waste. Countries are importing and exporting the same thing. In other words, the U.S. imports about a hundred thousand, um, but actually about a billion tons of beef, and turns around and exports about a billion tons of beef. Why? Because if we ate our own food in most countries for most of our daily needs, no multinationals would make money. But instead literally hundreds of thousands of farmers and, and medium-sized and smaller businesses would make money. Sorry if that's a bit long-winded. <laughs> no, no, no. That's what I, you know, we uh, do these long-form interviews so people don't have to talk in sound bites. So, I no, I really appreciate that. And it, I just wanted to uh, point out a couple of things about what you said. And one is that this is, as you were saying, this is not free trade. And it would seem like this idea of exporting uh, tons of beef while you're importing tons of beef, that that wouldn't make sense, that there would be no profit involved in that. So, a two-part question, I guess, but it's actually one answer. How is this not a free market, and what makes it profitable to be able to export meat or export any product and then be importing the exact same product? Well, again, remember now we're talking about profitable for whom. So when we're talking about giant multinational corporations, their profit may be you know, tiny for each product, but what this is all about is essentially control. So what's happening is as a consequence of our government supporting global trade, they're supporting global traders, that includes laying out a red carpet in the form of infrastructure that suits the needs of the global players. It includes allowing those global traders to be so mobile and so clever that they pay virtually no tax. So here we have a situation, a two-tier system of a type of feudalism where a few giants pay no tax and have no regulation. In the meanwhile, and I think this is one of the main reasons for the rise in this authoritarianism that's so frightening, is that small businesses around the world are feeling more and more uh, you know, frustrated by government bureaucracy, red tape, they're strangled by regulation, they're taxed very heavily. So their solution is no government, in other words, laissez-faire, free trade, neoliberal economics, because all they see is the big hand of government. They don't realize that behind that hand of government is the much bigger hand of giant businesses. And I believe that if we could get this message out, we could get a sane and very rapid shift towards preventing this completely skewed and unfair system from benefiting the few at the expense of the many. And no self-respecting capitalist believes in subsidies, believes in monopolies. And yet that's what we have. We, we are subsidizing global monopolies and punishing the 90%. So why do you think why do you think it is that we blame 
uh, or that, that it is so much more attractive, apparently, to blame the government than to blame businesses when clearly, you know, one of the things we hear here in the States, if only government was run like a business. Well, it is being run by business already. So why is it that we cannot see the hand of business behind whatever government bureaucracy that's being forced upon small businesses that is not being forced upon large businesses? Because the seeing is done through corporate eyes. I mean, this is for me the most frightening and also, in a sense, the most hopeful thing. That is that what I'm seeing is, even in my native country of Sweden and worldwide, is that virtually every avenue of knowledge is being colonized by big business. So the mainstream media, even as we now can see a lot of what goes on on the Internet, Science, education, you would not believe how much school books and university curricula have changed to favor either a silencing of the real issue, which is this monopolistic control, which is so inefficient and so destructive and really doesn't benefit even the average CEO. But it's this blind fundamentalist mantra about free trade and um, that's being perpetuated. And so really the problem is that you very rarely get a holistic, clear picture of what's going on globally. And the average person is just seeing the hand of government with its huge bureaucracy growing. We're all now subject to more and more bureaucracy, partly linked to the way the use of the computers and internet service the large scale. And so even as a doctor, you know, you're spending more of your time looking at your computer and writing up notes than you have time to look at your patient. Uh, uh, Teachers, professors, they're spending so much time, again, looking at the computer and reporting back to higher authorities that they can't deal with the students, they can't deal with the mentally ill, they can't. It's, It's really a very rapid progression into, yeah, into what we can you know, what we really need to describe as a type of neo-feudalism. So I think the big thing, I'm so grateful to you, I think community radio is one of the most important tools we have to reach more people with the same message, it's common sense, it's something that most people across left and right would agree with, because what we're saying, you know, the the people I deal with in, in the new economy movement is that it, this is not about, certainly not about a communist alternative. It's not even a socialist alternative we're talking about. We are talking about fairness. We're talking about ending these hidden subsidies. We're talking about ending a system which can only lead to, you know, right now we have about eight men controlling more than half more wealth than half of the global population. At this moment, we're moving in a direction where that's going to be reduced to four, then it's going to be reduced to two. I mean, it's insane what's happening. The the inequality, the injustice, the unfairness is something that, you know, almost no sane thinking person would subscribe to. But a clarity, a holistic, systemic understanding of what's going on globally, why this is happening, how the trade treaties are fundamental to all this. And I also want to add, you know, maybe for me, one of the most important things is that we now 
have evidence of what happens when people come together at the local level to support their local businesses. This is not some kind of isolationism or some kind of you know, racism, which is how it's portrayed by the global media. But this is local people coming together to collaborate and support smaller and medium-sized businesses. And we're just seeing, you know, wonderful results. Um, so we have evidence that allowing smaller-scale businesses to survive is beneficial both in terms of secure livelihoods, more genuinely democratic and accountable structures, but it also heals political and racial and social divides. So that information is another vitally important bit of evidence that we need to be presenting. And we need to use community media and every other sort of socially accountable media to get this message out. What 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 explains to you the susceptible? You know, we consume so much media. What explains uh, you think we'd be good at it? What explains our susceptibility to uh, business propaganda? Because you write, some studies have shown that every new supermarket in the UK entails a net loss of two hundred and seventy six jobs. The on- online marketer. Amazon has destroyed 150,000 more jobs than it has created, according to a report from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Like other online retailers, Amazon has not only benefited from communications and transport infrastructures built at public expense, it has avoided collecting state and local sales taxes from its customers, sales tax revenues that states and localities desperately need, giving Amazon a price advantage of as much as 9.75% over Main Street businesses. And we recently spoke to Stacey Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance about Amazon's unfair advantages, how it has been built on public money and resources, how it is arguably a monopoly, how it is bad for workers and local employment. Yet, even those who are aware continue to use Amazon and cities around the uh, country are fight, uh, fighting uh, for the newest Amazon headquarters. To you, what explains why cities want Amazon, want to continue to cheerlead for a company like Amazon to come in. As you and Stacey have pointed out, uh, they haven't proven to be good for cities or workers. This week we had Elon Musk saying that he's going to put in some high-speed rail for rich people that goes from downtown to our airport here in Chicago. And all of a sudden you see the TV news anchors on on our local stations with huge smiles and all excited and hand-clapping all over. Why is it that we cannot see that this is business propaganda? Well, I think from my point of view, it's not strange. It's because people so rarely hear a holistic, sensible argument that explains to them what's really going on. We have not realized how much propaganda there's been for the Internet world and the Internet businesses. Most people on the left, most environmentalists have seen it as almost only beneficial It's only very recently that people have started questioning it as some of the worst abuse has become clear. But, you know, so one of the worst things we're up against is as more and more people are struggling to pay the mortgage and to just survive, and they have less and less time when things are offered to them, like an Amazon product where they're not taxed and it looks a bit cheaper, you really can't blame people in a way for opting for that. What I'm convinced of is if we can just get some of the funders who are trying, you know, there are foundations, there are wealthy funders who are trying to do something 
you know, to make the world a better place, who really are fighting injustice and poverty, who are concerned about environmental issues, if they could only help to get this more holistic message out. Because we, we have a very powerful argument that is both social, environmental, democratic, even spiritual. It's to do with values, of, of human values, of really caring about community, caring about the future of our children. And yet, when it's just presented like, are you going to buy this Amazon product, you know, which is going to cost you a little bit less and you're going to get it faster or not, and it's just a market choice in a, a rat race where people are running faster and faster, we're not going to make headway. We've got to have, you know, an attempt. I, I, another way that I talk about it is what I see the greatest need today is what I call big picture activism. In other words, the activism now is really about people's minds. It's about really understanding what's going on. And it's about moving away from saying to people, I want you to buy the more expensive product, and that's how you're going to save the planet. This idea that we're all going to change things through the market is a corporate idea. We can change it through policy, and we can also change it through community connected uh, coming together through localization. So there's a lot we can do. So any listener out there, you know, who's listening now, I would urge you to look well, look at our website, look at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, who are friends and colleagues. We have an agenda that can help you right now do something much more meaningful, which you will find beneficial in your daily life right now. But we also want you to engage in this big picture activism, which is to share the links, to share those big picture pieces that are connecting the dots, that are putting things together in a way that shows that through very pragmatic and simple policy changes, we could start shifting the direction of our government. But we, can, we need to build up this voice into a stronger movement. It's a new economy movement which goes beyond left and right. We've got to stop fixating on Trump and, and, and on the Trump voters as bad guys. We've got to stop fixating just on climate or just on poverty or just on indigenous rights and see how when we put the big picture together, every single one of those categories, the poor, the marginalized, the planet, will all benefit from this economic shift. And that agenda, that picture is just not out there widely enough. I don't know if you disagree with that, if you think it is out there. I definitely don't see it. Yeah, I don't see it either. But as Helena was just saying, you can find out more about localization by going to, uh, she's the director, founder and director of Local Futures. And you can go to that website and find out more. Local Futures can be found at localfutures.org. Why do you think, or not do you think, why is the right seemingly better at exploiting precarity and insecurity than the left? Why does blaming others, why, why does hate, rather than us all working together to address the problem, why is that apparently more successful? Well, you see, if you look at how left and right, and again, that includes my native country of Sweden and all of Scandinavia, our governments have for far too long allowed a measure like GDP to be used to measure progress. GDP goes up 
with breakdown. You know, it is, it's an utterly insane thing that we're still allowing this to happen. So it means, in other words, all it measures is money exchange. In other words, commercialization. Commercialization increases with breakdown. If you have a very strong community and many friends and family, you don't need to pay for a caretaker to take your grandmother to the shop. If you have if a functioning strong community, you don't need to pay an escort service to go with you to a concert or something. If you have a functioning healthy economy, you do not measure progress as increasing if all the water is so polluted that people have to buy it in bottles. So we have very deep in our dominant economic system, supported by left and right, certain basic crazy foundations that have that need to be changed. They don't need to be changed by suddenly overnight, you know, shutting down every big corporation, ending all global trade, thinking that everybody in a corporation must be a bad person, everybody in a small local business is a good person. It's not like that. We are <clears throat> surrounded by a system which, through the way it's measured, GDP, through what we tax, and then what governments use to subsidize for those taxes. And then what governments regulate. And that means, you know, what they regulate and what they deregulate. Those mechanisms need to be shifted. And by shifting those mechanisms, we could actually have a peaceful path uh, whereby we start shrinking the power of these global monopolies. We start supporting and using our taxes and our our collective finances to support genuinely healthy, diversified production. In practical terms, it would not be nearly as difficult as people think to start shifting direction. But as I say, what's needed is that bigger picture to see it and also to see that on the ground. I, I have to tell you, you know, the localization movement for us is, particularly important around food. And in food and farming, we have had literally for now more more than a century, for centuries, we have had policies that essentially marginalize and destroy the small farmer. They have to struggle. They've been encouraged to buy more and more machinery, go into debt, and then either they merge and join, you know, become part of a bigger conglomerate or die. Now, that path is being reversed from the grassroots. It's a very small movement, but it's a rapidly growing movement, and it's worldwide. And what it's demonstrating is that when you support smaller diversified farms, you can actually start supporting farming that reduces CO2 emissions, that heals the soil, that actually is healing the environment while it increases productivity. Now, this is the fundamental truth that is being recognized now, even at the level of the UN. But again, it's not getting out. Because the myth we've had all these years, all these generations, is that we need big farms to feed the global population. That is a myth. So fundamental to the localization movement is this growing global local food movement. And that's where you can get a sort of basic lesson in a really sane new economy perspective. Of course, everything is not about food, 
that food is the only thing we produce as human beings that every single person on the planet needs every day of their life. The only thing that human beings produce that's so needed. So once we start getting that right and we start building and shifting direction, which is happening from the bottom up, and I want to say, you know, for me it's so amazingly inspiring to see how farmers and consumers and middlemen have come together to create these new food initiatives because they're doing it against the tide. All the information, the taxes, the subsidies, the pressure makes it difficult for them. And which is also why it is still not flourishing as much as it should because we have all these heavy heavy subsidies basically for Walmart. So if you go to the farmer's market, you will not get the same low prices. But you'd be surprised if you really start looking at what's happening, uh, how much the prices of really healthy food can come down in those local initiatives and how many projects there are, you know, even in Denver, in many other cities where people are starting to reclaim some of their knowledge about how to grow food, how many uh, projects it heals anger and violence, you know, there are projects with prisoners who when they start gardening and growing food can literally become different human beings, you know, in a matter of months. I don't want to wax too lyrical about it. I do love, love, love this movement. And I, you know, I know the farmer who started the first CSA in Beijing and I'm, I've helped, you know, I've worked with farmers in South Korea and in Italy and in Africa. We're, we're a very small organization, but very, very grassroots. And I suppose the biggest thing about that is that you do regain a sense that human beings really want to do the right thing. Human beings thrive. Even, you know, angry prisoners thrive when they are given the opportunity to do something different. How much do you, how much is the localization movement about getting prices more in line with reality? Because as you point out, a small farmer, they have to spend a lot more money to make their product because they are being regulated and restricted and limited by rules that they apply to large agribusiness uh, outfits. So they, uh, you know, there's a far bigger capital output for a small farmer than it is for a large farmer. You can't uh, you know, take that capital and spread it out over your gigantic system where you can make a little bit more money. How much is the localization movement about making prices more in line with the market? How how much is it about being actually more capitalist and free market than it actually is? Well, you see, this is very interesting because you have to realize that in a sense, what we're talking about here is two markets. So we've got this one essentially global market, which is being shaped through these global trade treaties and which has become more and more globalized and supporting bigger and bigger and more global banks and businesses. We should talk a little bit about the money as well. But in the meanwhile, when you start linking up farmers and consumers more directly, and it doesn't always have to be local, local. I mean, local is a relative term. Sometimes it will be just a direct relationship between a group of farmers and a group of consumers, maybe even in a different country, but it's a direct relationship. It's more human scale. There is more direct knowledge. And 
Best of all is when you can shorten the distances because then you reduce the need for packaging and for all kinds of things that become not only more expensive but very uh, counterproductive. You know, the mountains of plastic we're facing now have primarily are a consequence of this globalized system. So what you're doing is actually creating a different market. So this is the big difference. Instead of asking people in the dominant global market to buy the more expensive product and not buy the cheap thing from Amazon, here we're actually setting up a new market where they can actually buy things at quite a reasonable price. And above all, the producers and the shops uh, can thrive. And so you can actually show how in a more localized system, there is this multiple benefit effect because when you're buying from these local businesses or local farmers, they spend money in the local economy and you're getting this multiplier effect where money spent in that local economy will benefit many more people, many more jobs. And when you have those multiple benefits, you also start getting more collaboration between those people. Instead of people being trapped in this big system, just fighting to survive, fighting each other for this anonymous, big economic hand that they don't even understand or, or know about. And one thing you know, to keep in mind, which is very frightening in this deregulating global system, is that banks and financial institutions have been more and more deregulated. Now, this is after 2008, even, when everybody in the world knew that, of course, we've got to regulate these financial institutions that are playing with the lives of millions of people, trading in envelopes of mortgages that have been pushed on people and had no idea of who these people are, where they are, their names, nothing. It's a financial casino where you and I and our grandparents as well as our grandchildren are victims of a blind system. Now, one of the things I want to say about that, too, is I think that, you know, there are a lot of people even in the, on Wall Street and in other, you know, trading positions, they're, they're not, you know, they're not all evil people who are sitting there consciously destroying people's lives. They become so specialized and they're earning a good salary and they're in a culture where this is just what you do. So I think we're going to be greatly helped by also looking at this more as a problem of a system that's being supported through blindness. And yes, what I'm seeing is the higher up the ladder you go, the more you earn in this system, you're likely to be more blind and you're likely to be more willfully blind. And it can be pretty annoying to meet some of these willfully blind people. But generally, there's nobody there laying out the truth on a silver platter and getting people to, you know, really connect the dots and to see that, hey, you know, if you continue in this direction, you are helping, you know, as I said in that paper, you know, you're helping to give rise to a type of fascism, which is very frightening. You're also helping to increase CO2 emissions, mountains of plastic, toxic waste, toxic chemicals. You're helping to create insecurity, financial and economic insecurity for the majority of the human race. Wait a minute. Let's sit down and look at this and see what we could do collectively to change direction. Now, I know, you know a lot of people have given up on political change, and I can understand why. And I do want to say, and I really don't think the answer lies with 
trying to focus on on one new savior. It's about really more people having greater economic literacy in order to be politically more savvy. We are not going to have democracy if we do not deal with this economic juggernaut. And so, um, you know, people starting to discuss these issues, especially community radio, you know, keeping up this discussion. I'd love to be back on with you again. I'd love to put you in touch with some of my colleagues. You know, there's so, so much to say about all of this. Oh, we definitely want to do that. And I'm going to be bugging you in the very near future to get some more connections with people who are into the localization movement. I, but the, one of the things that you hear in the West, the global North here in the U.S., is that they they have this idea that and, and you've had experience with this in 40 years in working in Ladakh in the Indian Himalayas, uh, an area called Little Tibet, uh, is that. The West has done so much for the developing world, that they have given so much. They've spent so much money in foreign aid to help out the developing world. Here in the U.S., we see the media and government constantly blaming extremism for terrorism. But you saw the divide between Buddhist and Muslim populations in Tibet that had lived together uh, next door to each other in, in one solid community for centuries and centuries, for millennia, and then it was destroyed by de- development. How much has unfair development imposed by the West on the developing world led to not only militant extremism, but terrorism? Is development and the global economic system, quote unquote, why they hate us? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I want to say about this is that I do feel really sorry for the sort of average Westerner who is made to feel that it's their fault that all of this is happening. Yes, it is true. It came from the West. But as I see it, we have to understand that from the very beginning, we're talking about the global traders. And when that all started with slavery and colonialism, those traders were not very nice people. I mean, they had values that are, you know, abhorrent to most people. You know, they were literally hunting native people. There was genocide. There was, you know, slavery, imprisonment of people who didn't go along with essentially creating a global economy. People in the so-called third world, which, you know, were the colonies originally, they were forced away from producing a range of things for themselves to producing commodities for the global traders, for the global market. The whole regions became suddenly cotton areas or tea areas or tin mining. or And that was all through force. Having once established that system through force, later on these supposed colonies became liberated, but they didn't become financially liberated. I really hope that you and others will watch our film, The Economics of Happiness, uh, where we lay out this argument, you know, in a big picture way, and we're doing international conferences around the world, trying to link up, you know, people who are interested in everything from poverty and racism to to the environment and, and to democracy to come together for systemic change. So anyway, you know, in order to see that systemic change, you do have to go back in time. And right now, if we talk about this, incredible impoverishment and divisiveness that's growing in the so-called third world, we really have to make it clear that the average Westerner has had nothing to do with it. We have not been asked whether our taxes should be used to go out and essentially create more wealth for the very wealthy elite. And what they've done is actually create wealth for both 
Western elites, but also third world elites. So Chinese billionaires, Philippine billionaires, African billionaires. It's a, it's a system that really is marginalizing, you know, more than 90, I mean, really 99% of humanity. And in the meanwhile, let's not make it seem as though, you know, the average Westerners struggling to pay their mortgage had anything to do with that, except unconsciously, <clears throat> sometimes through very good will, promoting what they thought was aid, what they thought was development, and they thought it was a good thing. And so <clears throat> you even had many organizations, um, you know, non-governmental organizations raising money for a type of development that actually was destroying local economies, destroying local self-respect. Um, what's happening now, thank goodness, is there are, you know, in some cases there's a deeper dialogue and really what it comes down to is that every community is going to benefit by getting away from a dependence on global corporations and starting to build their own local economy. Um, but the link to to really frightening ethnic and racial divisiveness, the link to terrorism, is very, very clear in our experience. Because when you marginalize, particularly when you marginalize men, and we have a system which is doing it in a two-way uh, Way it comes in with images of who you should be all around the world. It doesn't matter where you live in Appalachia or in Kenya or in China. The image is essentially a white consumer image, and you should be filthy rich, glamorous, you know, and have uh, you know the fancy car, live the urban consumer lifestyle. Otherwise, you're nobody. But the other thing that's happening at the same time is that people's livelihoods are more insecure. So you have this overpowering image which makes you feel like nobody if you don't have all this stuff. And then at the same time, you have a system that's destroying millions of smaller farmers and jobs and livelihoods. So people are getting impoverished. When you do that to men, when you take away their psychological self-respect and their financial security, their ability to provide for themselves and their families and so on, that's a recipe for violence. And the immediate thing is to turn against the other, you know, the immediate other. And this is why, you know, now in the West there's such an anger against immigrants who are seen as the ones who are taking this away from them. And the same way, you know, I saw not just in Ladakh or Little Tibet, but in Bhutan, Hindus and Buddhists had lived side by side for generations. And after about a decade, well, about two decades of the system coming in, suddenly they were killing each other. So it's happening in Burma now with the Rohingya. And it happened in many other places after the colonial powers left. They had set up this highly competitive, very destructive economy, and suddenly different tribes and different groups were at each other's throats. So it's the, it's the problem of that ethnic friction and breakdown goes back, you know, to also to colonialism. 
I find that really fascinating, the idea of uh, it not being our fault, we are not responsible, because that is one of the, I think, the biggest obstacles to people understanding uh, how the economic, global economic system has punished the poor and made an unfair and unequal system that leads to the kind of hate, authoritarianism, extremism, and violence that you see. I, I don't think that people want to claim responsibility for that. And as you just pointed out, they shouldn't be claiming responsibility. They, it, we were never asked. There was never any kind of referendum. But here in the States, Helena, we have a right-wing leader, Donald Trump, who has come to power in partly due to his criticism of globalization. How can someone like Trump both be an outcome of globalization and a critic of it? Why would he try to undermine a system system from which he and his power were created? I think that we can see that we're dealing with someone who is very juvenile, very narcissistic, and he's coming in on this you know, belief that he's going to make America great. And that, in his mind, also make, means making himself great and his businesses wealthier and greater. And uh, he is, um, it's a very, very disturbing trend for many of us because he, of course, makes many people believe that if he's against these trade treaties, well, then it must be a good thing. Um, but I think we just have to, again, sit down and really look at what's going on here. This is not a man who is going to be genuinely supporting flourishing smaller and medium-sized businesses. This is a man who's out to get a deal, which apparently even made clear now in North Korea he wants to build Trump hotels. So I think um, I just hope that people will look at these issues and think for themselves. And we're talking about a way forward, which is not feeding into old-time nationalism, which has always been linked to uh, a leadership that used it in, in a, often for war. Uh, you know, nationalism is generally not healthy. What is healthy is a sense of community, a sense of identity, but not one that is linked to a nation-state that is going to make itself great at the expense of other countries and other people, and, and usually, you know, completely linked to a war machine. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're dealing with a very difficult situation. But I think, uh, I, I, I mean, I don't think, I am convinced, you know, when we show people our film, The Economics of Happiness, and we, for instance, deal with the fact that countries are importing and exporting the same products, I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're not just talking about America. We're talking the UK routinely exports as much milk and butter as it turns around and imports. Now, does anyone talk about that when they talk about climate change? No, because this is what's supporting the global corporations at the expense of literally millions of smaller businesses and farmers. Do people know that supermarkets routinely will fly apples from the UK to South Africa to be washed, and then they're flown back again. Norway flies fish to China to be deboned, and then it flies back again. I mean, we are talking about the most outrageous ways and the major cause of climate change. And what's happened? Because of corporate funding, the climate change issue is also just pointing the finger at these poor individuals who are just struggling to survive, and they're told, you know, you're driving your car. You're going on holiday in an airplane. 
with your environmental activists and you're traveling. How dare you? In this era of climate change, you should stay home and you should never fly and you should never drive a car. You know, in the meanwhile, the major cause of climate change is not being discussed. And so what I'm saying is, if we can help get this bigger picture out, I see the potential for really a huge wing towards sanity and a type of holistic sanity that we reduce this enormous gap now between, I mean, you know, the scary, scary thing is that the gap between different racial groups, between gender, between immigrants and insiders, all of these um, divisions, these social divisions are being played up hugely in the media. And the areas where we could actually come together for meaningful change uh, are not getting out or not getting a voice. Um, and as I said, you know, whether it's poverty in the third world or climate change or a million and other, you know, and another thing we should be talking about is the epidemic of anxiety and depression in young people, which is a global epidemic, absolutely global epidemic, growing by the day. Yeah, we... If we don't see a connection to this bigger system, again, it becomes another single issue that ends up being divisive. And the most tragic thing is that parents end up blaming themselves. Uh, you know, the suicide rates going up, anxiety, depression, and without the bigger picture, it's all about self-blame. And it's not going to get us anywhere except towards anger and further divisiveness. Helena, one last question for you. We've been speaking with award-winning new economy movement pioneer Helena Norberg. Hodge. She wrote the article Localization, a Strategic Solution to Globalize Authoritarianism, which was posted at the Transnational Institute's website. You can find out more about her organization, which she is the founder and director of Local Futures, by going to localfutures.org, where you can find out how localization can work for you and your community. One last question for you, Helena, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write a relate, uh, uh, an elitism charge against people who are for localization is that the northerners working to localize their economies are turning their backs on the impoverished people of the global south who need northern markets to pull themselves out of poverty. What will happen? What would happen to developing economies if suddenly the U.S wasn't the world's leading consumer anymore. What would happen if the nation that, as of 2015, consumes a whopping 29% of the world market, with Japan coming in second and only slightly over 8.5% of the market, suddenly stopped consuming the goods of the global south? See, this is what's, how it's presented, as some kind of boycott, like overnight, okay, we're not going to buy any more stuff, you know, from one day to the next. Totally impossible. What we're talking about here is the transition that would give plenty of time to the producers who right now in producing things for us, often market gadgets or, you know, just consumer gadgets or even food, are not producing for themselves. Perfect amount of time for us to make that shift in production. They're going to have just the same amount of time to make the transition themselves. So this is not possible as some kind of boycott. It's not going to be snap our fingers and suddenly we're producing everything we need. It's going to be a policy choice. It's going to be a movement as it is now. You know, there's a, a grassroots movement growing and there's plenty of time for those people who are dependent on the other system to start making adjustments. 
Helena, I really, really appreciate you being on the show this week. I am going to annoy you in email to get more contact information for people who are working on the localization movement around the world. And your article, I just want to point out to everybody, you should go out and you should go read her article, uh, Localization, a Strategic Solution to Globalized Authoritarianism, because she gives many examples of how millions of people are already in the localization movement and oddly that's not being talked about in the corporate mainstream media. Thank you so much, Helena. I really appreciate you being on our show. Thank you. Love talking to you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Chuck spoke with Helena Norberg-Hodge in June of this year. And finally, we're going to close the show with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This one from March. One, two, you know what to do. No one can afford to live. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. President Dump finally did it. He triggered the nuclear trade wars, a chain reaction of mutually prohibitive tariffs, a global web of protectionist punishments. Now, no one can afford to live. I'm going to pretend this is not an exaggeration. Let's see how that goes. No one can afford a place to live. Apartments and houses stand vacant because the rents and mortgages are too damn high. Landlords receive nothing for their properties, so they themselves must vacate their homes. What's propping up the price if not demand? Some artificial thing, a principle, or an attitude no one understands. Even the banks receive no income from their properties. The streets are lined with shanties made of reclaimed garbage. No one can afford to buy food. Food rots in the supermarket because no one has the money to buy it. The cashiers and stock boys and baggers and managers haven't worked in months because the grocery stores aren't taking in any revenue. The food gets thrown out, but some loyal employee takes it upon himself without pay to pour bleach all over it and make sure it can't be eaten by the scavenging homeless, which is all of us. That loyal employee is a jerk, but we understand his desire to please his now non-existent boss. He has stock boy syndrome. The farmers are out of business because no one can afford what they grow, and pretty soon the farmers themselves can't afford to grow it. Artists are still making art because artists are used to working for nothing. Teachers are teaching because they're used to working without resources. They're teaching the homeless kids, which is all the kids. Firemen are still putting out fires with whatever tools they can get their hands on out of a sense of duty just to keep abandoned burning buildings from injuring anyone. The prisoners are freed. The state can't afford to keep them in prison. The guards, even the crazy, super loyal ones, walk off the job because everyone has something better to do, even if it's nothing. When the computers turn off the prison electricity, the generator power kicks in, and some kind or foolish soul opens everything before that auxiliary juice runs out. Cops are preventing theft and committing it themselves, as usual, but nothing they steal is worth anything anymore. Gangs are protecting people for free, for loyalty, for whatever humans have that makes it worthwhile for a strong person to protect a weak one from another strong one. Factories all over the world grind to a halt. Even the billionaires go broke. The Sultan of Brunei has to vacate his palaces because computers keep track of when the palace payments come in, and that bell hasn't pinged for a long time. The Sultan and all his retinue join the rest of us on the streets. By his third week among us, he's just as filthy and ratty as the rest of the Homo sapiens. 
Even the financial people finally run out of imaginary money with which to pay their mortgages or yacht payments or immortality bills. Yachts are moored, but nobody's paid the mooring fees. Some try floating out at sea, but you can imagine the ship of foolish cannibals that turns into. Eventually, the robots come and polish the empty houses. All of humanity staggers through the streets, looking enviously at the shiny houses that are closed to them. Some of the prisoners move back to the empty prison because there's something about a solid space for living that pleases some people. That was many years ago. At last, Donald Dump and his despicable legion are dead, purged from the species like the generation that wandered for 40 years in the desert. Life is better. Sure, there's violence and chaos. So there always has been. But there are a lot more decent people involved in defusing conflict than wherever available before. It turns out most people are pretty nosy, given the leisure time to be so. Farmers started growing seed they rescued from whatever source there was. Gardeners grew stuff. A whole lot of people pitched in, even the Sultan of Brunei, although I think he's always waiting for his chance to take up residence in his palace again. The Sultan gets that look in his eye, that wistful look. Or Elon Musk, who was a perfectly good hoer, not whore, not prostitute, but rather person who operates a garden hoe. Oh, hell, let's face it, the word hoe has been mangled beyond recognition. But it is healing now, now that there's no money. Soon it will mean a garden implement again, if we can get those skateboard punks to stop using it. The death of money has changed a lot of things. There's no mediating substance, it seems, between one person and another. A-holes are a-holes for the pure a-holishness of it. And people are kind for the pure pleasure of being kind. Yes, it's true. People did those things for pure reasons before. But there was always a question. What do they really want? That question isn't there. Or at least not in the same unpleasant way. There's a directness to life now that wasn't there before. Perhaps some felt it in the days of money. But many of us remark about the clean absence of a sticky vapor, a spider in our ears, a pall over our days, lint in our mouths, chains on our wrists and ankles, all gone up in bubbles like an Alka-Seltzer tablet or a packet of emergency powder in a glass of water. Anyway, Elon Musk is pretty good in the garden. But even he gets that look in his eye, like he's got this great idea of stealing all the food and holding it for some kind of ransom, such as the labor of others which is the only crass currency these days. He and the Sultan are lovers. I wish they'd found different partners, partners with more humble backgrounds, less liable to enable the other's crapulous yearning for yesteryear. But they found each other. There is surely a reason. It's like two ex-smokers falling in love, each hoping the other will break and take a puff first, so both can finally give in to their fondest desire. It falls to us to keep them in line, since they won't do it for each other. Whenever one of them gets that glazy, unsavory, dull glisten in his eye, as if staring with lust and hunger at a large jewel one has just taken possession of, one of us relatively normal people has to smack him in the face with a wet slab of Ethiopian injera. It doesn't hurt, but it's humiliating. And now and then, a little humility is just what some people need. This has been the moment of truth. A good day. Okay, uh, everybody, thank you for listening to The Best of Capitalism, Part 1, and way more of the same next week, to be honest, and the week after that, and the week after that. Thanks for sticking with us. Be careful. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, 
visit thisishell.com.